listening to the Legendary Wrestling Obsession Podcast with your hosts, Corey Draper and Jeff Hughes. What a bastard! Didn't know what happened to him there. My word, Anderson can't believe that he's beside himself with anger. And Tully Blanchard is beside himself almost unconscious. Good down-home cheating. Good down-home good down cheating. Sure. All-Star Wrestling is sanctioned by the AWA. We're back for part two of our AWA coverage. Uh, pretty good first half. I think we had some really interesting discussions, places I didn't expect us to go. And what that often leads to is information we're not even sure about, because you're not, you, know, you don't know you're going to talk about something, and then all of a sudden you're left wondering, you know, making a statement, hoping, hoping it's correct. So as we've been doing with the different episodes we've been recording... Uh, we've been looking back in the second half of the first half, figuring out where can we fill in some gaps, where can we you know correct some mistakes, uh, or at least add some better context. Uh, so we're going to roll through uh, you know a ton of stuff because there was a lot of stuff in that first half, and we'll see if we can sew it back all up into a neat bow. Uh, so one of the things that Jeff talked about was first when he went back and looked at trying to figure out if '70s AWA was really on his plate or not, and you know one of the first clips he came across was Bobby Heenan making this you know statement in the ring of sort of changing his name and was was a beautiful Bobby was it <laughs> what was the other one gorgeous gorgeous Bobby Heenan and then I was thinking like I think it was Pretty Boy so I looked it up and it was Pretty Boy uh, Heenan, uh, Heenan that was sort of the the name he was going with in Chicago the problem was is that Larry the Axe Henning at one point in the seventies as part of a tag team with Harley race was using that moniker. So it was handsome Harley race and pretty boy Larry Henning was like this big tag team in the seventies. Heenan was essentially somewhat forced to change his little, his nickname because of course he's not going to try and have the same nickname as someone as large as uh, Larry Henning. And uh, that's where that came from. Had you ever heard of that as a tag team race and Henning? No. I knew Larry Henning as the Axe, yeah, father of Kurt, of course, but not uh, so much that incarnation. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Another thing we we speculated on was the attendance at AWA shows, and and I talked about this in another show. Basically, the idea that in some ways, when the WF took over Winnipeg and started running shows in Winnipeg, that with the exception of the Hogan Orndorff card, that for the most part, the AWA was actually drawing better numbers to the Winnipeg Arena than the WWF show was. And then we speculated, like, what would the, you know, what did that look like? You know, were they getting 10,000? Were they getting 8,000? We know they had some really big houses. One thing I was disappointed when I started looking around, because I haven't really looked for this stuff before, is that when you go to the history of WWE.com, there are links to several major promotions, you know, territories, a whole long list, and you can click on them, and there's all this great info but for some reason, the AWA isn't one of the promotions on that page, even though the WF has their library and whatnot. So I'm not sure what the, you know, why the person who runs that website hasn't gotten that information. But it's a little more difficult to find AWA card information than it is some of these other promotions. So that's making it a bit more difficult for us to go back and try and figure out, you know, for example, a show that Jeff was at. He's trying to figure out which... Winnipeg show was he at, and without being able to see the actual card, it's hard to pinpoint the exact date. I know you had a bit of a story of of being at that card. Maybe maybe it's not even the card that's really important. It's what you know what happened because of that card. 
Indeed. Well, my mom was a radio personality here in Winnipeg, and she also wrote for a newspaper. So she was a uh, minor celebrity in the city. And she decided to write a column about professional wrestling because it was blowing up and getting really big. And so I'm assuming that uh, this was after Rocky III. It was also after I had met a professional wrestler. Uh, he was a friend of my brother's, a guy by the name of Warren, and his character was Agent Orange. <laughs> and he happened to be a six foot five redhead guy. <laughs> he wasn't particularly uh, muscular, but he wasn't, you know, scrawny either. And at six five or six six, yeah, as long as you're not a skeleton, you're a pretty big guy. So I'm sure he weighed about two forty or two fifty. Anyway, he had toured AWA, and he was a jobber mostly. I think he also did a professional wrestling television show at the local VPW Channel 13 Community Access Station. <laughs> oh, yeah. I flipped by one time, and there's my buddy Warren cutting a promo Ooh. at a lectern or a sort of a podium, a, yeah. a wooden one that people would put their speech on, but a fairly big one. So, And he's cutting his promo saying, You guys, I'm going to show you and teach you a lesson. And then the heels came on and beat him up. <laughs> and I remember they were like, brand him! They, they took the podium because it had sort of a X base, you know, with two right. pieces of wood. And they were like, they put it on top of his chest and then they were pounding on the podium. Brand him! Brand him! With the, the podium. <laughs> so Warren had told me that he knew Hulk Hogan and had toured with them. And he told me about the pranks they played on each wow. other. The ribs. But nothing uh, too unsuitable for work. He uh, said they used to play, well, you would go into locker rooms. And I guess sometimes, I suppose, they would be in the ladies' locker room. Not with any ladies, but with the sanitary napkins available for a quarter uh -huh. or whatever. So the guys would hide tampons in the other guys' gear. Right. So Hogan would go to put his boots on and he'd find, you know, a tampon stuff wedged in his toe. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was pretty safe. But what Warren told me, he said one time... This is pretty um, family friendly, not that for wrestlers ribbing. Jello. Somebody yeah. put jello into Hogan's boots. Oh, jeez. And this is what Warren told me, and I was pretty fascinated. I guess I was 11 years old or 10, and he's telling me that. Yeah. Warren actually also, he let me play fight with him a bit and put me in the headlock, and <laughs> he told me I sold great, you know. In another incarnation, I was, I was a triple ch crown champion. <laughs> Different universe. Me. Anyway, so there was a. Winnipeg wrestling event at the Winnipeg Arena, and I only had watched wrestling on TV. I mean, who else is going to take me? Living my mom uh, and my brother and me, so there wasn't any other uncle or dad, anything like that, who was going to take me to the wrestling. So yeah. my mom decided to write a column, probably for the Winnipeg Sun, and I'm assuming it's going to be like 83 or 82. And she had enough yank to summon Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was stunned myself. And so we're in the lower parts of the Winnipeg Arena where you've got to go down some stairs. And next thing I know, Hogan shows up. And I knew my mom could get into movies for free and that she had met celebrities. You know, she had right. met Mother... She'd taken me to meet Mother Teresa. So my mom had some yank. But, I mean, this was another... Level. Yeah. <laughs> this. Hogan's more important than Mother Teresa. <laughs> Absolutely. Any day that you can give me a thousand Mother Teresas, Hogan will he'll leg drop them all. 
So Hogan didn't look too happy. I mean, mm. this is after the match, and you know he's got to come and talk to one lady, and there's a guy with a suit, an official or some road manager, yeah, who had you know said, Hogan, we want some good PR here, and there's a local so and so that wants to talk to you, and so he shows up. He probably wasn't expecting me to mention Agent Orange, and you know, here was my chance to see if Warren was telling the truth. Yeah, and he was. Hogan snickered kind of chuckled yeah i mean he wasn't happy to be there you know my mom must have maybe asked one or two questions but i don't think she really did an interview no no because he he was correct it wasn't an it wasn't an interview and she let me do the talking because i had something to say something to ask and i was asking my mom about it and she said oh yes i remember now yeah i remember he warmed up you he you know he he wasn't too pleased to be there but by the end of it you know you turned him around so that was awesome. I wish I could remember who he wrestled that night, but I would have remembered it if he was wrestling Nick Bockwinkle for the gold. I'm yeah. sure that would have yeah. stuck in my memory. So it must have been some other Bobby match. Heenan. Yeah, maybe a tag match or maybe one of the... Uh, yeah, I think Ken, you saw Patera was on there or somebody. Or, or Gasp Bobby Duncan. Like, <laughs> that would have been my last choice of yeah, Hogan yeah, versus yeah. Bobby Duncan. So that was how I met Hulk Hogan. That's neat, man. Another thing we came through was talking about that Saturday Night Live before WrestleMania. And kind of, I know you kind of hadn't heard the, you know, the statement of that Hogan and T were the hosts because someone had, you know, pulled up because they're sick. I, I seem to have heard that many times. When I went to go find that information, it was a little more difficult than I was expecting it to be. And I finally came across one thing that referenced it. And I, I don't know... The person who wrote the article wasn't even sure why the ex- intended host, Steve Landsberg, who was a stand-up comedian, had backed out apparently the week of the show. And there is some speculation that it was due to a upcoming suspected, assumed, writer strike. And that's why that episode of Saturday Night Live is so weird. There is no news segment on that Saturday Night Live. I believe it's pretty much probably the only one that ever happened that didn't have like a, you know, a weekend update or whatever you want to call it. And that they had to like, you know, shift, shift gears and throw these guys in there and they made it work. But that host, he actually appears on the, on the show and does like, he does a whole segment of stand-up comedy sort of out of, not the norm for like how Saturday Night Live ran. It wasn't a sketch. It wasn't a, you know, musical performance. It was just literally this guy doing his, his stand-up performance and there was other aspects of that show that were pre-recorded, some some of the video vignettes they would create. So it seemed like the week of the show, when they were putting it together, they were relying on, okay, like, we don't have as many sketches as we normally do, so we're going to fill time by doing X, Y, and Z. And that included the opening. wasn't really a stand-up, the, the normal opening. It literally was a promo. It was Hogan and T doing promos for WrestleMania. And... Bob Orton and, Cal- and Roddy Piper got to appear later in the show, and apparently Roddy Piper stole the show, even though just from a recorded piece of him hyping WrestleMania. And the person writing the article said, you know, it wasn't really funny, but if you in any way were even slightly interested in wrestling, it was super entertaining. Oh, wow, okay. That's pretty neat, yeah. Uh, so the other thing we talked about was different people in the AWA that we forgot, and then we came up with Tito Santana was the name that we both, you know, were like, that's the one of the guys that really stood out as somebody that we knew so well. But we're kind of like, wait a minute, he was in the AWA? Oh yeah, he was. And speculating, who did he wrestle? Right. Well, I did go and watch a Tito Santana shoot interview, but I don't know so much that I learned who he wrestled, so let's talk about that. Yeah, so a couple things I found. There wasn't a ton, but I think it's in there. So 
And he quickly moved up the card to be uh, the challenger to Nick Bockwinkle. So in 80, in end of 80, beginning of 81, he, he had a bunch of title matches against Bockwinkle on house shows. And they ran an angle like on TV and stuff like that. And then from there, he moved into a feud with Sheik Adnan LKC. And this is the part that really, when I read about it, I was like, wait a minute, now something's coming back. You know, it's dart of memory. And basically, there was a set, there was something happened where the Sheik was in the ring with his yeah, harem girl, or sometimes they would bring out like, you know, one or two like harem girls. And he was mistreating her somewhat, you know, like, I'm not sure what he was doing. He was yelling at her. I, it didn't say he was like, it wasn't making it out like he was attacking her or anything, but just being disrespectful. Yeah. And Tito, the gentleman, you know, would not stand for that. So apparently, you know, he gave Sheik a, a shove and a whatever, and, and, but then left. But as he was leaving and turned his back, Casey attacks him with like the, you know, the hilt of the saber and chokes him with the, with the, you know, the say, what, what do you call it? The, Scabbard. Sh- the sheath or whatever, you know, like the, and, and that really rang a bell in my head. I was like, oh, I remember that. I'm starting to, this all coming back. But then I also thought about it for a second. I'm like, wait a minute, didn't she do the same thing to Rick Martell? Like, <laughs> and the other thing that I noticed, uh, a couple other things I noticed with Tito was, that he he tagged a lot with Rick Martel. So Strike Force <laughs> was Strike Force way back in the AWA. So they already had, you know, that may be one of the reasons why they got put together was because they already had a lot of matches under their belt, you know, wrestling as a team. And I even came across must be a weird one, but I came across a link for Tito versus uh sorry, what was the Olympian guy? Uh the Campeter- no, no, no. Uh, Brad Ringens. <laughs> Brad Ringens. I, mean, I don't know how that match could go, but but that's interesting. So yeah, there's some of the stuff we you know we had from Tito in the AWA. It wasn't very long that he was there, but in the interview he said that um Hogan was in the class behind him. Right. Timing wise. Okay. And that he gave Hogan advice. Uh, on how to behave in the ring in Japan, mm-hmm. which was just go clobber them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> apologize. Wow, I'm sorry for offending you so much that you would clobber me. Yeah. Um, so goes the rumor. If you slap a Japanese guy on the subway, he'll apologize for offending you. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, yeah, never tried it myself, but I uh, don't intend would, to would, try. Wouldn't recommend. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's just... Anyway, so... Tito Santana did tell a story that I found fascinating. Uh, we've talked about the significance of the film Rocky Three, and you got to wonder if another actor had taken it, would that have changed anything? So there were three wrestlers that got letters from the movie studio. Oh, wow. Yeah, and two of them ignored it. I wanted to see if you could guess, because one, you could probably guess, but another one shocked the hell out of me. Well, so, geez, I mean, I'm assuming they want somebody big. Like, is it, is it so big that they would have asked Andre? Like, I, how the hell does Stallone... Okay, we'll, t- we'll count that as one of your guesses. Andre. But it doesn't even make sense, because poor Stallone... Well, I'll give you three guesses, so let's How's he just... supposed to do anything with that? Uh, geez, back then, I'm trying to think of who was, like, big enough that they could have, like, pulled that off size-wise. Like, a, you know, uh, the big guys back then, like Tony Atlas... Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't see them wanting someone like a flare or something, so... Are those your three guesses? I mean, they're not, but let's just... Let's just <laughs> <laughs> you weasel. It's definitely not flare. <laughs> Corey, the weasel draper. That's right. Okay, so Paul Orndorff got a letter. Oh, cool. yeah, yeah. That's height-wise, that would be better for Stallone. <laughs> yeah. And then, Gorilla Monsoon. What? I ah. guess I guess the Muhammad Ali stuff, like the... Uh, I suppose so, maybe. Yeah. Um, Go on then. So he had an exhibition match where he was like boxer versus wrestler Muhammad Ali versus Gorilla Monsoon. And there is a moment where Gorilla Monsoon picks 
Muhammad Ali up over his shoulder like a potato sack and kind of carries him around the ring. Um, you know, there, there's not too much going on in the fight, but it's a bit of a spectacle. The bigger version of that was Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki in Japan, or, you know, from Japan. I can't remember if they filmed it in the States or in Japan, but that was a really big spectacle, and they tried to repeat that a little bit with Grella Monsoon when he was still wrestling. So, but... Uh, right. Well, that shocked me, that he was the yeah. other potential... You know, yeah, I, I know that would not have worked well in the movie. Like, you know, like I love Grella, but he just wouldn't have come across on the screen and as like some big intimidating Hulk. <laughs> he was also at the end of his career. Yeah, because uh, I also saw researching Hogan's early days that he had a couple of matches against Gorilla. Oh, neat. Yeah, yeah. I guess that would have been when he was yeah doing his his uh, his heel blasty version with the. Uh, Assuming that was in New York territory, because I think Gorilla was there pretty much for a long time. He had his little ha- he had his hands in the Puerto Rico organ- wrestling league that he that he owned, partially owned or whatever, and then of course WWF. Well, Tito had a pretty close perspective for all of Hogan uh, leaving the AWA. Yeah, but what he did summarize with was uh, he said Hogan was in there beating up baby faces, but the crowd kept cheering him. This is after Rocky Three, Right. So you couldn't really help it. The crowd was doing what they wanted to do. Yeah. And, but, but, but anyway, Tito said, um, so Vince got him, made him face, and that's the beginning of history, said Tito Santana. Tito. <laughs> Sounds like he missed the, the whole part where he turned good guy in AWA. And to round back to that, we talked, we gave, we gave Vern a lot of credit for turning Hogan baby face, but... When Hogan was heel in the other places, he wasn't coming off that success of Rocky either, right? So had he been in Memphis or Florida or New York, maybe the same kind of thing would have happened where they would have, been, they would have felt and seen the energy to turn him good guy because of the, the popularity of being in that movie. It's interesting. Yeah, well, I guess now it sounds a little less uh, definitive because, it, you know, have we got mixed up now between the birth of Hulkamania you know, in the AWA, where it can certainly be argued, but Vern's reluctance to give him the belt, it's uh, it becomes a philosophical question in a sense. Is the birth of Hulkamania beating Shiki Baby? One, two, three. Is that the proper birth of Hulkamania? I, 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 or... still don't, I still don't buy it. He was, he was already being credited as the most popular, biggest attraction in wrestling in the AWA, even though he wasn't in New York. And he, the character, the this, the terminology, Hulkamania is running wild. Which you can, like, I mean, a lot of that stuff. You know, he was already saying that. You know, if he was, if he was a shell of that in the AWA and maybe acting as a good guy, but didn't really have much of the shtick, then I could see it. But I think, like, yeah, the fact that they didn't put the belt on him is more just like, uh, it didn't, it didn't matter. You know, he was almost like Andre in a way that he didn't need a belt to be like the most popular. Well, Tito was definitely saying that Hulk Hogan. I think after Rocky Three, blowing up was the beginning of history. Right, but he, he like he'd already filmed like you know he left New York, filmed Rocky Three, got to the AWA, and early on by that point the movie's out, so that's what forces the turn in the AWA. So I I, I think it's like you know in my opinion unquestioned that the start of Hulkamania is in the AWA. It's just that like if you could look at a graph, it's on it's it's on this steep trajectory going up 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 up, and then he switches over to you know WWF and then it just keeps going up 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 you know and I'm not trying to compare 83 AWA to like 87 WWF in any way so I do have to do one major correction for myself definitely misspoke the two shires so at one point in the first half I reference AW noted AWA historian 
and I called him Roy Shire. And then later in the episode, we're talking about the Hollywood League, the San Francisco Wrestling, and the promoter owner being Roy Shire. So I used the same name twice, so I'll correct myself. The AWA historian is George Shire, and the San Francisco guy is Roy Shire. So I, and how does Jaws figure out? Exactly, yeah, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> Earthquake comes out with a bunch of sharp teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that was sad. <laughs> oh yeah, the shark. Like, oh, this oh, guy no. was the main eventer. You gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Dungeon of Doom. That's that's your uh, the wizard. Oh, remember uh, the the Kamala wi- wizard manager? Yeah. He, he's part of that faction. Oh, that was uh, he? Dungeon of Doom. The Dusty Rhodes forehead. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, we <laughs> not here to talk about the Dungeon of Doom. So let's focus back on the start of Vern's televised wrestling success on the Dumont Network. And we both were sort of a little unclear on exactly what that was. I went and looked. It wasn't before ABC, NBC, CBS. It was at the same time. It was one of the first networks. It was literally right up there with them. I was very unclear. Yes. I never even heard of it. <laughs> exactly. I won't, I won't try to like you know do the history of that network. But generally speaking, they had a short-lived run where they were very successful. But at the time, the rules and regulations around like licenses for television networks and all these things became very restrictive and difficult and they basically ran into roadblocks from their expansion because they were they were basically got at one point shifted where they could only be on like UHF dials and things that you know they weren't getting the same kind of feed one of the things that they're most famous for is basically Jackie Gleason became a big star on their network through a variety show and the first ever appearance of the concept the actors the characters for the honeymooners was done on this variety show and then later was became a you know a sitcom obviously uh, for te- for television. So most of the footage was destroyed sometime around 1970. So it's kind of considered the lost network because a lot of the original programming that was on there it doesn't exist anymore. For some reason there was a uh, you know a culling of reels and whatever else they had this stuff on. So it's pretty sad. A lot of most of it's gone, but the program. Uh, it was featuring matches staged by the National Wrestling Alliance, and it was a member named Fred Kohler, like his, his company, Fred Kohler Enterprises, in Chicago, under the name Wrestling from Marigold Arena. And that was the show. And Vern Gagne, like I said, was a US, an NWA US champion, regional champion or whatever, in this, in this area on this television show, made super famous on this network that people like you and I have, don't know much about. <laughs> when you say, like a US champion, do you mean he was the number two champ? I think so. I don't. I'm not as familiar with the structure of how the belts worked back then. Obviously, uh, in the '80s, the U.S. NWA champion was sort of in that under the NWA structure was the the number two champion. I won't pretend to know how the '50s was set up and how many other champions there were because I think. But you know, there were was only one person claiming to be a world champion, the NWA world champion. Everybody else was like a Texas champion, a Florida champion, a New York champion. Like it was all under these offices of like NWA this, NWA that. So they kind of had everything was under that one big umbrella. Okay, yeah, I did watch an old Vern Gagne match or two. Yeah. It's kind of hard to get into the old school wrestling, you know. I guess maybe that's how people feel about our beloved eighties. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's era era based. Yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's kind of cool. The the story of a headlock, you know, basically yeah. like you know they could have yeah. a thirty minute match over like one guy's getting an arm bar and the other guy's getting a headlock, and like that's you know the best part of looking back 
is that it's not your granddad in there wearing the gold. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm the toughest in the world. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, Vern, your ego's got a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he was quite impressive physical, like... In the day. In the day, and, you know, had the full head of hair. You're a good-looking guy. Like, you know, you can, sure. see, you can see why he was, you know, in yep. the position he was in. No problem. And, uh... But he wouldn't let go that But he goal. wouldn't let go in the 80s. <laughs> um, so part of that in the creation of the AWA was the challenge of Pat O'Connor, the NWA champion at the time. And uh, so just to be specific, he was given 90 days to defend. So he was actually named the champion. It wasn't just like, I'm going to like challenge you. We're going to create a championship. It was more like, we're the American Wrestling Association. You're our champion. Mm-hmm. Now you have 90 days to defend it. And, you know, he wouldn't do it. And, uh, of course, there was no, you know. As we talked about, they're not gonna. So he is he listed in a sense that he's listed as the first champion, Pat mm-hmm. O'Connor. Yeah, Pat O'Connor's listed as the first AWA champion for ninety days or something like that. But and he then anybody didn't, didn't defend his belt, and that's right. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And then Vern gets. Was it. he aware of any? <laughs> Was he told, <laughs> or it's just just all storyline? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it really rolled out. I've just read that. I, I, I've I've heard that several times. You know, over the last couple of decades that. There was this sort of, there is a bit of a mystique about, was he the champ or was he just like challenged to be the champ, you know, like put up your NWA championship against my new AWA championship. But the way it's written out that I see online now, it kind of lists him as the first ever champion, even though he never wrestled for the company, mm-hmm. never made any appearances, you know, never accepted this achievement. <laughs> Pretty clever. And that's how we had the first, second. The second. And that's, yeah, a, that's important. The first, yeah. The first Second world champion. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so then you have your Worldwide Wrestling Federation. They withdrew from the NWA in 1963 and created their own world champion. So the AWA champion is it pre- precedes the WWF champion. How many years? Just a few. Three. Yeah. Three. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then this all led to Pro Wrestling Illustrated declaring these three champions. You know, by the time we, we get to the 80s and reading magazines. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, they, they've worked, wow. This system's been in place for a couple of, you know, couple of decades already, basically, right? We've got six and 70s and... Approved. Yeah, exactly. So... And who did you say their first one then? The WWWF? Who did they... Buddy Rogers um, had had some health issues around that time and but it was still listed as the first champion i believe it was another one of these famous um you know the intercontinental championship the fake tournament in the same place where where was that like brazil like i can't remember where it was but they always make fun of, of pat patterson because he couldn't say the name of the place so they they made the place he won the belt fictionally like you know some something he couldn't pronounce <laughs> so that he would have to try and say it on tv it was like a another one of these ribs so same idea that it was like a fake tournament and Buddy Rogers was named champion, and he fairly quickly lost it to Bruno, coming back from this, like, basically he'd had a heart, you know, he'd had a heart attack or some kind of heart issue, legit. <laughs> and and that was almost played into the storyline a bit, too. It was like people were aware that he had health issues or whatever. So the picture I always see is him after he's lost, he's laying on the ground, kind of gripping his chest, like, as if he's, like, you know, <laughs> Sanford and Son having the big one or something, you know. <laughs> so... I kind of made uh, some statements about Vern's title reigns that were off. So I'm just going to quickly kind of go through this and you can kind of poke in here, especially as we get towards the, you know, into the 80s, because I think that's when I'm going to blow your mind with some information that will remind us of something that we'd forgotten. So basically 1960 to 64, Vern had about six title reigns and they would go back and forth. He would lose it to somebody, but then get it back from them fairly quickly. So the majority of those years, he is the champ. He does lose the belt, but, you know, 
often gets it back within weeks or a month or two months or whatever it is, and then has another you know fairly long run, almost a year, let's say, and then loses it to somebody. From when to when? 1960 to 64. Okay. And then when you get into 64 to 67, there's actually a long list of different wrestlers that have the belt, some of them multiple times, and Vern's not involved in that picture. He's actually like, you know, he's never, there's a lot of the belt flying around. Mad Dog Vachon has like five title reigns, I think six overall, like five during that period. So there's a lot of different people getting the belt. Then Vern gets the belt back in 67, which is what I'm thinking and remembering. So during that time, 1967... To Not ni- that you were born yet. That's right. 1967 <laughs> to 1975... <laughs> now we're alive. Ah. <laughs> Vern held that title for all but 14 days. So he loses it to Bockwinkle and wins it back two weeks later and then holds it holds it for like a long time. So that was, a, what was it, eight years, would you say? 67 to 75. So yeah, roughly eight years. And then when you put those other things in there... So I said he held it for like 15 years. I was getting a little uh, little ahead of myself on that. But, you know, it's a lot of... T- you know, he's he's the champ for... Like, if you if you go by number of days, he's filling up a huge chunk of that calendar from 1960 okay. to 75. And then in 75 to 80, Bachwinkle held the title basically until he lost it to Vern. Vern did a retirement match thing where he like... Yeah, he like... He gets the... I always thought he won the belt and immediately retired, but he didn't. He won the belt... And then he retires like a little bit later, a couple more defenses down the road. But he does this like this big comeback in 1980. He wins the belt and then not that long after retires, vacates the belt. And Nick Bockwinkle in 81 is awarded the belt back. Like he doesn't have to beat anybody. They just, (laughs) management just gives it to him on TV, literally. They just award it to him. And then we have something really weird in 1982. (laughs) You just said his name on a different show, but Otto Vance bought the title. (laughs) He paid... He paid Vern Gagne fifty grand for a title reign. He had about a forty-one day reign, um, just to try and just for like to build up his own prestige for his promotion. His, I, I believe, he had a promotion in Germany, and basically he wanted to call himself an AWA champion. So yeah, he won this. I, I I barely remember the fact that he was supposed to be champion at one point. I know that was shown on TV. All I remember of Otto Vance. I don't know if you remember this. Was ripping the phone books. You remember that? I do, but I didn't know who that was. was. Yeah, so this is the strongman routine he did. And I'm not talking about opening the spine and ripping the pages away. He would, you know, close big, thick yellow pages, and he would just tear them in half. And he would do several of them in a row. I don't know if they were gimmicked. I know that the shtick was always other wrestlers would be in there trying to do it too, and they couldn't quite get it. Like, you know, Ken Patera is trying to show that he's stronger, but he can't rip the book. And then Otto Vance would just rip these books apart. I don't know, maybe someone can tell us if it was legit or not. (laughs) Wow, that's very memorable, the uh, tearing the yellow pages apart. Yeah. But I had forgotten who'd done it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So here's where we go, and this is what I wanted to get to. So we talked a lot about Rick Martell and the chase of Nick Bonquinkle, and he was after him forever. And we, you know, it was on TV a lot. And I even remember, do you remember the vignette of Rick Martell doing the training to go after Bockwinkle? I had I have forgotten. So again, kind of like the fabulous ones, I think they used a vignette that was filmed somewhere else because I tried to find it online and I thought I found it, but it's from like the World Wrestling Council or whatever, which is like Puerto Rico or something like that. But it's a it's a video of Rick Martel in shorts, no shirt. I think he has maybe he's got sunglasses on. And he's basically training in a park. He's like running around, he's jogging around a park and he's doing different things. At some point, 
he's got this giant trainer, like a guy that's much bigger than him, up on his shoulders. <laughs> like he's giving him like, you know, he's got him up on his shoulders and he's 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 jogging and then he stops and does squats. And then he like jogs some more and, and it's it's a long, it's like three, four minutes to music and it's him like doing all these different stretches and running, but it's like so different than let's say a WWF vignette. Like it's just completely different. But it did remind me of they did really similar style vignettes, probably not as long, of Ronnie Garvin training to like when he was trying to get the title from Ric Flair in 87. So that was really funny. I always found like whoever filmed the 87 Garvin thing, I guarantee you they had seen the Rick Martell like, you know, stuff and were like, hey, let's just do this. <laughs> does, does any of that ring any any bells? Or? I think I missed those vignettes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the whole point of what I'm getting to is Nick Bockwinkle didn't lose to Rick Martell. This I was aware of. Yeah. A Japanese wrestler. <laughs> Jumbo Sharuta beat Nick Bockwinkle, and then Rick Martell beat Jumbo Sharuta. Anticlimactic. Anti yeah. And, I, you know, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, I knew that. I definitely knew that. And But at the same time, I was like, on TV, they didn't really push... That I, I remember seeing the clip on TV of him winning the title. They might have shown it t two weeks in a row, let's say. But after that, they kind of just went back to business as usual, and including Nick Bockwinkle trying to get the belt back from Martell. So if you didn't watch for a couple of weeks and weren't paying attention, you would have no reason to not think that, like, that Martell won it from Bockwinkle, in my estimation. That's kind of the way I remember it. Yeah, same here. Yeah, exactly. You would have to have somebody tell you that knew... If you were just watching the show and the uh, narrative was definitely like, here's the old champ and here's a new champ. And you're like, oh, okay. So, you know, that's the old <laughs> champ and this is the new champ. And it's like, there's a mystery Japanese wrestler right in between these two champs. <laughs> yeah. So Bachwinkle loses it in Tokyo and then Martel wins it back in St. Paul, you know, Minneapolis or Minnesota or however you say that. Probably saying that wrong. But yeah, so that's. That's the hit. That's the the history of that. We won't get into the rest of the the heavyweight title stuff because I'm sure we'll have find reasons to talk about that another time. But I kind of just wanted to kind of correct that Vern Gagne stuff and just kind of remind ourselves about Chumbo Sharuda being the the champion to take it from Bachwinkle, not not Martel, as we'd all hoped. Um, so another thing that I looked at was there was a lot of title changes in Winnipeg for the AWA, but the heavyweight title never changed here. So there was um, there was some there was a few tag team title changes. And there was something called the, I haven't, I haven't looked this up for a couple of years. I'm trying to remember back. It was like a British AWA, like British Commonwealth Championship or something. And it was almost exclusively defended in Winnipeg. Huh. <laughs> I think there's only one title change anywhere other than Winnipeg. And it existed for, you know, several years. And the same guy was the champ for almost the entire time. And he would just put the same thing. He'd lose it to somebody and then get it back. And well, I saw a near title change, which is almost my most exciting memory uh, of watching wrestling in Winnipeg. Yeah. So there was an AWA wrestler called Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal. <laughs> and he was uh, he had a beard and, you know, bleach blonde hair. Yeah. And, you know, and, of, kind of, and of course, not our will beloved William Regal, but, no, uh, yeah. This, this is a North American guy. Yeah, yeah. Not very big. He, he would have looked right at home on the Midnight Express. Yes, and I believe he did have a, a tag team title reign with Jimmy Garvin, perhaps? Yes. So they were champs, and these guys, you know, they drew heat. They were main eventers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, not on this particular night. Yeah. But, I mean, 
I guess that's a, that's a difficult term to really nail down. Hogan was a main eventer in that, you know, once he hit the main event, he never went anywhere yeah. else, right? A lot of other people are like main eventers, but might be on the mid card, you know, like Brutus Beefcake was in, he was a mid carder, but you know, they put him in the main event for a few, yep. you know, uh, times. Yeah. There was times where he could be filling. He, That's or, right. Or he would just be in that spot. Yeah. You know, or let's say like WrestleMania two, where it, when he was in the most exciting yes. match of the, the whole card, the dream That's team right. versus the Bulldogs. So, of course. um, anyway, so without discussing the actual terminology, mid carder, main eventer, there was, a guy who would otherwise be a jobber wrestling Mr. Electricity, Steve Regal, for a lightweight yeah. belt. And this guy from Winnipeg, I don't know if I ever saw him on TV. If I did, he would have got squashed because, for one thing, he was a cruiserweight. And as you probably gathered, Mr. Electricity wasn't a monster, but no. he was he was big enough to hold the tag belts with Jimmy Garvin. But he was light enough to be the, you know, the world champion, light heavyweight champion. Do you remember who they won their tag titles from? Uh, was it, did they take it from the High Flyers? No. Um, no, then I don't. The Road Warriors. Oh my God. Right. Okay. I've successfully shut that out of my memory. <laughs> how, could the, how could these two weasels yeah. beat the mighty yeah. Road Warriors? The Freebirds couldn't do it. The Fabulous Ones couldn't do it. But Jimmy Jam Garvin and Mr. Electricity, Mr. Not Electricity, Steve Regal. Yeah. Like, what? Well, that's hilarious. Okay, so I'm right of all the people that finally took the gold off the Road Warriors. <laughs> so this Winnipeg wrestler had a title shot against Mr. Electricity and the place went crazy. It was in the middle of the card. But I remember that better than anything else. Yeah. I do remember that they built a steel cage, so right. that might help me figure out what show that I yeah, saw. Yeah. But so far, our research doesn't show uh, the entire matchup. So Winnipeg wrestling fans, if you were there back <laughs> in the day, uh, you would probably probably remember the Winnipeg wrestler almost winning this belt from Mr. Electricity. So props to... Steve Regal, he put our local boy over huge. Yeah. Our local boy had the night of his life. Yeah, yeah. And Mr. Electricity made him look fabulous. It was like, <laughs> like it was exciting, like Savage Steamboat WrestleMania 3, the way they did these near falls. And, yeah, yeah. And I wish I could remember the name of the, uh, the local boy who also wasn't anything particularly exciting or impressive, but that match, I'll never forget how the crowd sounded when it was like one two kick out oh god so close ah, come on, get him. <laughs> we, we really thought he was going to take the belt yeah, off Mr. Yeah. off of uh steve regal and that was so much fun i i must have been about 11 and um that could have even been the night that i met hogan and i yeah. remember this match <laughs> that's great he showed up in the wwf yeah mr electricity and got his ass handed to him like just <laughs> boy man i remember that and my other memory of somebody was tom zank getting squashed by vader where i was like boy tom zank used to be a somebody and he just got so yeah destroyed by vader i was like oh yeah how could you ever put tom zank over again yeah it was Vader. really bad timing because they just brought him in and he had enough credibility they could have done whatever they wanted with him yeah but yeah. then they, but then the booker all of a sudden's like, oh, let's we need to show Vader strong. Let's squash Tom Zink. It's like, why don't you squash somebody else? Because Tom Zink still had all this like 
potential you know, to... he still had all this WWF cred that people were like, okay, that guy, you know, like, yeah. and, and I mean, I've heard people say it. I mean, Tom Zink, you know, he, you know, he's a big guy. He's a great body. You know, some, some say like you could almost like, you know, Hey, he could have pretty much gotten like a Luger push, you know, like sure. he wasn't quite as ripped as Luger, but I mean, mm-hmm. he was in that range. And at that time he was a better worker than Luger. So it's right. like, um, especially in the eighties and stuff. Yeah. It's interesting when you see guys who used to have some credibility yeah. job, it's always yeah. a little sad. Yeah. And, uh, so that was, that was the last time I saw Mr. Electricity was getting crushed in, uh, you know, on the superstars of wrestling WWF or something like that. And I think I only saw him once yeah. in a prelim match. And it was nothing like that night at the no, Winnipeg Arena. of course not. So we talked about sort of, you know, you came across a match that you really enjoyed. Terry Gordy versus Rick Martel. And like, you know, how did you see this? Or how did we not see this? And this kind of led me to kind of try and figure out. I knew that, you know, we weren't getting all the shows. And it's kind of interesting because AWA and WWF have different television shows that run during years that we're talking about. And very, you know, most, for the most part, none of them are in Winnipeg. (laughs) So we're really limited as to what we can see. So I'm just going to kind of like run through the different television products that were on to try and illustrate a point. It was kind of what you were talking about is that like so much of the matches that happened on TV, Winnipeg fans just didn't see it. You might get lucky and see a clip the next week on your syndicated TV because it was something important enough for them to want to show it to you. But you also might just never hear about it. If you had a favorite wrestler, like in the mid-80s, late, even the late-80s, again, I talked about, there really were only on, you know, that, that big roster, your guy would be on maybe once every three weeks. And because we only had the one syndicated show, if I took like a four-year period, and you could pick a different wrestler or tag team that you liked, you could probably count on less than two, you know, less than ten fingers, the amount of times that you saw that wrestler or tag team wrestle on a, a premier match that wasn't a squash match on either syndicated TV, Saturday Night's Main Event, or maybe, let's say, up to WrestleMania 4 when there wasn't that many different shows, right? So, but they had these other premier matches that appeared on these other television shows that we didn't get. So there's, if, if I think I only saw this, these guys have 10 good matches in four years, well, they probably had 20 or 25 that were televised, but they, we just didn't get them. So the WWF TV I kind of started looking from the 70s because it wasn't really there was no point in going before that but there was All-Star Wrestling was from 1971 to 86 and then Superstars of Wrestling is 86 to 2001 and the interesting thing is that we start watching in January 86 and that change happens over in the fall of 86 so our Maple Leaf Wrestling initially is the Canadian version of All-Star Wrestling and then it becomes the Canadian version of Superstars of Wrestling, which essentially is the same, all the same thing. But, like, you know, it was interesting. I would have always told you, if somebody asked me, I'd always say, oh, yeah, Maple Leaf Wrestling was Superstars of Wrestling. But there's actually, a you know, part of a year there, a good chunk of a year, where it's a different show. But Maple Reef, Leaf Wrestling, that's not CKND Saturday night. Saturday morning, yes. Saturday morning. Yes. It's the syndicated property that's shown in Canada because of the, there was, like, you know, there's, there's TV regulations in Canada. There has to be Canadian content. So they like, you know, at least a certain amount. So a, a network, I'm not sure the rules exactly, but by having inserts with Billy Red Lion in Toronto and different stuff like that, it allowed that show to fulfill the requirement of whatever. Not saying that they couldn't show any show that wasn't American, but it was almost like there's a minimum requirement on their overall schedule. And by having some Canadian content on that show, it counted as a Canadian show and then they didn't have to worry about it. But Billy Red Lion was never talking about the AWA or was he? 
No, no, no. He he worked for. I mean, I think he wrestled in the AWA when he was a wrestler, right. like for sure. But because he moved around like right. any of these other guys did. But and so, AWA was never Maple Leaf wrestling. No, no, not at all. No, no, no. I'll get to them in a second. They they pretty much have the same. They they, they only have three or four different shows. WF has a lot. So they have. WF also has Championship Wrestling from 1971 to 86. Again, we don't start watching until 86, so that didn't really affect us. From 1976 to 1997, they had WWF on MSG Network, Madison Square Garden. Interestingly enough, Prism is not listed on this list. We don't see, I don't got any list of the Spectrum shows that we've been seeing, so that's not listed as an actual thing, so I'm Cal, not sure why. Cal Redman. That's right. And then we've got All-American Wrestling from 1983 to 1994. You got World Championship Wrestling. So this is the brief time in 1984 to 1985 where McMahon bought Georgia Championship Wrestling, took over the TBS lot, the famous, infamous Black Saturday, where he took that over. Um, we won't get into all that today. That's That's been talked a lot about by a lot of different people, so I'm sure anyone listening to this is probably knows what we're talking about. Um, if we find a good reason, we can touch on that another time. We've got Maple Leaf Wrestling, of course, 1984 to 86. And then we've got Tuesday Night Titans, which is the silly Vince, Vince McMahon doing the uh, Johnny Carson type and all the skits and all the stuff. Mostly see that stuff through Coliseum Video. You, you know, Some of it would be shown in, as little highlights on the syndicated TV, but we definitely didn't have that. Then you have Primetime Wrestling, 1985 to 1993. There are a bunch of good matches on Primetime Wrestling, and we didn't get any of that shit. Like, you know, I was like, I, I saw a list somebody made of, like, matches worth watching in 1986, WF, and it was a whole huge long list, and I was like, huh? And I started, like, just, like, looking at the list and, you know, cut, you know, copy the, the, the title of the, the the thing with the date, plug it into, like, Google, and, like, nine times out of ten, boom, video pops up. Oh, here's a six, seven, eight, nine-minute match on WF TV that I never saw. Oh, here's the Bulldogs and Captain Lou Obano six-man tag versus Dream Team and Johnny V, you know, like, just, that was never on our TV. Like, we didn't get that shit. So that leaves us with Wrestling Challenge, which is 86 to 95. And, oh, pardon me, Primetime Wrestling became Monday Night Raw. So Primetime Wrestling was a two-hour uh, block. It, it, it changed at times. Sometimes it was only an hour, but for the most part, it was a two-hour show. And in 1993, that's what becomes your Monday Night Raw when Primetime Wrestling goes away. And then you've got Wrestling Challenge, like I said, which has a premiere match every single week, which Superstars of Wrestling didn't. And then there's Superstars of Wrestling, which is 1986 to 2001. So it's interesting. You think of, like, syndicated TV as going away in 93, like when Raw starts, but it didn't. Like, they kept showing... They kept running uh, something that looked a bit more like what we grew up on, whoever, whatever networks were carrying it. But, uh, of course, 93 was a time when I stopped watching as much wrestling and I wasn't paying attention to, like, especially the, the those syndicated shows, so I don't really know much about it. So now we go AWA TV, okay? All-Star Wrestling, the show we talk about, 1960 to 1991. So, I mean, that show existed in its entirety, like, for the, you know, the run of the company. That's how the, that's the beginning to the end of the company. So it's it's around forever, you do get what's called uh, AWA Championship Wrestling from 1985 to 1990. So that's the ESPN show, and also it was aired on Screenport in Europe. So this is where I think we're finding these matches that we don't know about. And because, like I said, I didn't find the TSN feed for ESPN AWA Wrestling until about 87, I think. So there's a couple of years there where there's, like, these matches are happening on there. You talked about Terry Gordy and Rick Martel. I'd come across a link. I didn't get to finish watching the match, but I watched the first few minutes. Rick Martel versus King Tonga. You know, I can't even remember what year it was. It was and it was, you know, I was like, that caught my attention. I was like, oh, like, <laughs> how, how is this a thing? So that was interesting. And then, little known, in 85... 
So from 85 till 1990, AWA Major League Wrestling. So this is the Canadian show filmed exclusively in Winnipeg. We stopped getting All-Star Wrestling in 1985. At this point, you know, like, pardon me, yeah, 1985. Our, our, so they would have initially, in 1985, I guess, whenever that happened, Saturday Night Wrestling, we, we go from watching All-Star Wrestling to AWA Major League Wrestling, which is the same company, looks pretty similar, but all the matches are filmed in Winnipeg so that we get our own squash matches. And then they try to insert all the stuff to give us the same information we would have gotten on the other syndicated TV. So if they're showing a highlight from a, an arena show, well, they put that into it, you know, and some of those, I'm sure, they, I'm sure they're inserting the promos, you know, probably from the other show as well. And something that came up interesting that I found out a couple of years ago was Greg Gagne stopped coming to Winnipeg for some reason, you know, like he was still wrestling, but he just stopped coming to Winnipeg. So when they were filming these different shows, the Winnipeg show didn't have Greg Gagne on it because he, he wasn't coming to Winnipeg to film matches. So in storyline, there's an example where there's a Nick Bonkwinkle babyface turn in 1986 and they have to film it. They have to come up with a different way because in, in the American TV, Nick Bockwinkle and Larry Sinisco have a falling out. They're a tag team, they're buddies, and then they have a falling out because there's a, you know, Zabisco's using the nunchucks on Greg Gagne in a match. And, and uh, Bockwinkle comes in and takes the nunchucks away, and that's like they're falling out. But in Winnipeg, they're like, they have to come up with a different reason. So in Winnipeg, it's Mad Dog Vachon basically says like, I don't trust you, but, you know, the only one who can stand beside me in this match is he's going to fight Borzukov and his manager, Russian Chris Markov. And he, so he fights as a tag team. So Larry Sabisco gets mad at Nick Bockwinkle for tagging with Mad Dog Vachon to create the break. So it's interesting that they had to, like, you know, run different storylines to get to the same, you know, the same point or the same booking or whatever. So that was really neat. <laughs> Do you remember when a tough guy general manager or potentially coach of the Winnipeg Jets was a guest referee at an AWA show? That is sounding familiar. That's got to be Ferguson. That's got to be John Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can sort of pick a guy with a really big chin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think that was a couple of months before I got to go see my first match. Right. And that probably would have caught my mom's attention. Like, oh, because it was in the news, right? Yeah, like, yeah. This was part of, like, I guess... Maybe wrestling's increasing popularity was getting Ferguson involved. Right. And I have this image in my mind of the newspaper, black and white picture of, you know, clenched fists and, you know, I'll show you, don't mess with me, with <laughs> Ferguson and possibly, you know, whoever was feuding. I'm a, it could have been Bachwinkle and Martel, or who, I really don't remember who, but shoot, that's one of those things that is worth a Google search. And <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so again, it just comes back to, like, the, the drum I love to beat, which is that, like, our TV access completely shaped and formed our experience of how we took in wrestling and, and our memories. And by not having all those other WWF shows, we missed out on so many matches that never made it to any other, you know, they weren't on, you know, they didn't get, they didn't get on the Coliseum video, they didn't get onto this or that, they didn't show up on you know, our superstars of wrestling or Maple Leaf Wrestling, whatever you want to call it because it was essentially the same show, and the name even changed. Eventually, of course, very quickly, Maple Leaf Wrestling goes away, and they just call it Superstars Wrestling. So how did it work? One day you turned on Channel 12 Saturday, and was there just no wrestling there, or it was different wrestling was there? It was just gone. Oh, my God. I almost died. <laughs> like, you know, I, 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 you know, as always, 
was what I'm sure watching Looney Tunes cartoon. And then something came on. Like, and I want to say it was like, I know it wasn't like Kinsman Bingo or something, but just something just completely like not related to sports or wrestling. And just this, like my stomach dropped, you know, like, and I was like, ah, where's the wrestling? And, and, you know, this is switching the dial of the, the 13 channels, spinning them around, trying to find it, thinking it must be on another channel and just panicking and, and no luck. And, but, you know, not being smart enough to really like, you know, kind of dig into like the newspaper to see if there's like a listing for it or something, just thinking, oh, well, it'll be on next week. And then showing up the next week to the same stupid program that's not wrestling and just being devastated. And that's when I finally was like, okay, like, where's my mom's newspaper? And I'm going to find the, I'm going to find the thing and I'm going to scroll through with my fingers, you know, looking for wrestling and finally finding Maple Leaf Wrestling listed, you know, 10 in the morning, not at six at night, 10 in the morning. Now it's a morning thing. You know, all of a sudden it's a morning ritual. I, I quit playing hockey in grade two because, or three, because I was, it was like interfering with my wrestling and my cartoons, you know, <laughs> there was no cartoon network. You couldn't like, <laughs> you, you couldn't like just watch them whenever you wanted to. So I was like, screw this. I found out my practices were every, you know, like every Saturday morning at such and such time that we're going to like, you know, take away some of my best cartoons and wrestling. I was like, no, I'm like, <laughs> so how long did that take between nothing on Saturday at, uh, I guess, was it five o'clock? Six o'clock. It was six o'clock. And then, you know, I, I, I don't know for sure. I'm going to guess two or three weeks. Like it was pretty quick. I wasn't, I know I wasn't just like in a void of no wrestling right. at all forever. Um, and then the weird thing is that it's been told and I can see it here listed like that, that Winnipeg EWA show, you know, reappeared on a different channel on a different day. And I don't know why I didn't find it. And I think it didn't look as good as the AWA All-Star Wrestling Show. So if I did find it, I think I thought it was like the local, like, Tony Candelo show. And I didn't really watch that very much. I watched it a bit here and there. There was one year when I kind of found something that I watched. But for the most part, I didn't. So I never really, I didn't realize AWA was sort of just... Hey, now it's on Sundays at this time instead of Saturday at this time. So, and other wrestling did creep in. You know, I won't talk about it now, but, you know, there will be points I'll bring this up where, like, 86 is, like, this gateway to wrestling. Like, things start happening. You know, like, all of a sudden, all this other wrestling starts coming our way, and I'm finding it all, and I'm just loving it. And I don't understand <laughs> how I didn't know we're both the AWA show. Like, it was just, it was kind of mind-blowing when this person explained to me when it was on, where it was on. This conversation was several years ago now, so I'm kind of forgetting the details, but I was just like, what? How did I, how did I miss that? Yeah, I wonder what other gems were on that AWA ESPN, because it was, uh, caught my attention, Rick Martel versus Terry Gordy. Yeah. Imagine Rick Martel versus Road Warrior Animal. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, like I said, this, you know, this AWA show isn't obviously going to be the be-all, end-all of talking about AWA. We'll find other ways to get back to it. And I think one of the things we'll try and focus on when we do is the characters, like the, for, you know, once Mean Gene leaves, but even, and even before he leaves, there are some crazy announcers in the AWA and like their, their stories, their real life stories are like, you know, kind of just insane. Like <laughs> and it's really quite funny. Like some of the stuff, the, the biographies that have been put out and some of the stories about these guys, the partying that went on in Winnipeg and stuff like that, like in the late seventies. And I think that like people with Greg Ganya, a lot of people make fun of him for sure. Right. Somewhat rightfully so. Cause he didn't look like a big tough guy. <laughs> he looked pretty weak. And they don't maybe understand why he was popular, but it's like, I can kind of get if you come and look at like mid-80s Greg Ganya, he's kind of 
he went from looking really young to looking old, like there was no in between. It was like he kind of, you know, it was kind of sad. And at that point, Vern's trying to push him as a singles wrestler, and it's really not working. But in the seventies, when he had that young look. And, like, again, with Jim Brunzel and the High Flyers, and they had these great matches. But, like, when he's wrestling as a singles wrestler, it wasn't, he didn't, he didn't wrestle that same kind of style. It was more wrestling like his dad. You know, it was more just, like, holds, headlocks. You know, he'd do this, he'd have a match with a jobber when he was the AWA television champion, which was the belt that he held for quite a while near the end of the, the company. And it would be a slow match. And it would finally end with, like, one drop kick or one suplex, and then he'd pin the guy. And it was just like, okay, uh, this isn't, nobody's, get, nobody's getting excited about this. You know, like, it's, you can tell the crowd's not that into it. So he's definitely the brunt of so many jokes for just, you know, being pushed. But, I mean, like, I think the examples of, like, nepotism are much worse with, like, uh, Eric Watts and Bill Watts in WCW, like, in the, in the early 90s. Like, that was... He's a more impressive athlete, Eric Watts, but he wasn't a good wrestler. Like, at least Greg could, like, actually do his... Greg was good at his craft, even if some people, you know, can't really see that he was. Uh, That, for me, the early draw really was about the high flyers. Yeah. I think we probably did that, and I'm repeating myself, but Greg Gagne was super exciting as a kid, you know, and he had a pretty clean-cut image, you know, and was soft-spoken. He wasn't crazy, you know. No. Just, uh, I found him quite appealing, Although it's interesting to hear and also makes a lot of sense that trying to be his dad yeah. was his dad's idea and he was like, sure, yeah. you know, and it just didn't and, work And out. I think they felt like they, it was known that the crowd wasn't going to accept him as the world champion. And I've heard other people say there's only going to be one world champion in the, in the Gagne family. Like that Vern didn't want him to be the world champion. He never wanted, you know, him to quite reach that level. He wanted him to be successful. He wished he was a big draw. He wanted him to be the, because he was always apparently looking for someone that he could trust with the, the title. Like why Bockwinkle had it for so long and him and Sabisco, if you're not familiar, Sabisco married Vern's daughter. So that made him like a safe choice as like a champion because like he was always worried about people like taking the belt <laughs> like, and running away or, or at least not cooperating and not doing, you know, not doing business, so to speak, and leaving them in a lurch a la Stan Hansen. Yeah. Well, okay. He, I was thinking Flair, who showed up yeah. with the belt. <laughs> yep, yep. That was pretty good uh, yeah. visually, you yes, know. Yes, yes. And that led to a lot of strange blurred out videos, you know. When yeah, the going, legal rights and stuff like yeah, that, yeah. Including at one point... He had a tag belt. He yeah, was yeah, they weren't allowed to. So they to to avoid it, they to avoid it completely. Flair would carry around a copy of a tag belt, and then they would digitally blur it out on TV, so they to try and make it look like he was still carrying around the big gold. But Flair mailed Vince McMahon the belt because he'd almost come to the WF several times, and Vince wasn't really necessarily believing that Flair was really going to come this time. And then huh. and then the belt showed up in the mail, <laughs> <laughs> and then he knew you know he knew he was really coming. Oh, that's wild! Really, yeah. he sent the belt. <laughs> yeah, because wow. he wanted he wanted his deposit back. So the NWA World Champion that's had right. to pay. He... Ric Flair wanted his deposit plus interest back because in the, in the, those days with the traveling NWA World Champion, you had to put up like twenty five thousand dollars or whatever it was to and carry around that belt. big yeah. belt because it had actual gold. Yes, and then in the agreement, I guess, was that the the company would bank the money, and then they would pay you back your twenty five grand plus this meager interest at the end of your reign when you were done. And so, if Jim Hurd wanted the belt back. Flair said, "Okay, I want my I want my twenty five grand plus interest." And Jim Hurd apparently didn't know about this, de- you know, the, the the dealings of the NW the actual dealings of how the NWA championship worked, and basically refused to give him his money. I think he eventually did get it. 
But in the meantime, that's when Flair was like, "Fine, you're not going to give me my money. Then, <laughs> then I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this belt to WWF." And here you go. This is brilliant. It was yeah. really a stroke of genius to show up <laughs> with that. I feel ultimately the WWF fumbled that. Yeah, because they never gave us the big proper Flair Hogan spectacle. Yeah, it's it's pathetic. I've heard someone like a Bruce Pritchard say over and over again, oh, it wasn't, a, you know, because they, they wrestled some matches on some ho shows and they, the matches didn't go well and somehow the crowds didn't go well. Like, I think they wrestled in, like, New York and, like, didn't sell out or something. And it's just like, okay, but Flair could have a great match with a broomstick. Pat Patterson can put together a great match for anybody. If, if Pat Patterson can make Hogan and Warrior have a good match against each other, I don't believe that they couldn't have come up with something to make Flair and, and, and Hogan look good. And they really blew it. And I don't care what your excuse is. I don't care anything. Like, people were clamoring for that match for like seven, eight, nine years. And then finally it's there on a platter. And then they don't want to do it. And I, I and like, I don't believe that it was like Flair, like, oh, I'm not going to, like, I'm not, you know, he, he put Savage over at WrestleMania 8. Why wouldn't he put over Hogan? You yeah. know? And he did it so many yeah. other times in his career. Sure. So yeah. I certainly don't believe that it was because Flair wasn't willing to, you know, play ball. He certainly was. And there was no reason that they couldn't have ran that match. And, you know, WCW just ran right to it. It's the first thing they could do. You know, as soon as Hogan got to WCW, like, their most successful pay-per-view up to that point, bang, Hogan Flair. And they wrestled many times on pay-per-view. Well, I saw a match that looked like somebody was had their phone trained on a security camera monitor. It was really... I, I'm... I was actually going for a laugh there. It was just bad okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just bad quality. Yeah. But it was everything that we ever wanted. It was Flair with his illicit stolen gold. Yeah. And I don't even think it was blurred out because it was like a fan from way up in the stands right. shooting this. And so at that time was Hogan the champion, but Flair was saying, I'm the real world champion. So they both had the gold. So Flair makes his entrance with his big, chunky gold belt, like the one that's got a lot of surface area, you know, a beautiful belt that we remember well because of our pro wrestling illustrated days. So we remember the belt before, which had a couple flags on it. Yeah. And then they made the transition to the Yeah, basically the Harley Race belt or whatever. Right. Yeah. Okay. This terrible, shaky low-quality footage has Ric Flair making his entrance with the NWA World Championship and his beautiful robe, and then it has Hogan with his music and his WWF title. Yeah, it would all depend on the timing, because, of course, um, Survivor Series that year is when Flair's involved in the, the screw job on Hogan with Undertaker, and that's when Ho- that's when the belt gets vacated. Right. So, But, but it could have been, like, sept- September, October, you know, part of November, like, could have all been, could have been dates where they would have been running... A match between Hogan and Flair when they were both both had their belts. Well, I remember telling you about this, and then not even being able to find it again later on YouTube. Yeah, which is where I saw it. Big surprise. Anyway, so the match was good. Yeah, and the crowd was crazy. Yeah, it was exactly what you would have thought the crowd would sound like if NWA World Champion Ric Flair walked into the ring to face WWF Champion Hulk Hogan. So they fight and they have this nice big long match and they go for the dusty finish. Fucking Flair pins Hogan. Wow. Yeah. And Hogan lets Flair run around. I win, I win, I win. But then 
the dusty finish, meaning that yeah. the crowd gets to experience the thrill of a title change. Yeah. But then officials come in and say, no, no, I saw the brass knuckles or, you know, that the time had run out or, <laughs> yeah. you know, I saw the anything. Whatever the reason was. Yeah. But that crowd, and, and I was amazed because just even for one night for Hogan to say, yeah, I'll lay down clean yeah. and you can get the one, two, three on me. So I watched it and I told you about it and somehow we didn't trace it down. But I saw it. I saw some terrible amateur video footage of everything we ever wanted. Yeah. Because they were both in great shape. Yeah. It wasn't, you know... I mean, people wanted it in, like, 88, 87. Like, to me, the only follow-up to Hogan Andre that, like, made sense would have been, like, uh, like if you could just pick it, would be Flair Hogan at that time. Because they were both were a tiny bit younger, right? Like... 87, 88 to 92, both of them age a bit. Now, Flair ages more gracefully than, than Hogan does, but that's the match that everyone wanted, and this wouldn't give it to us. Like, that, I, the whole idea that, oh, we tried on the house show and it didn't work and we had to pivot, bullshit. They didn't need to have a house show match. Just show up at WrestleMania. Don't don't let anybody see it. Like, don't let anybody ever see it. Like, I don't believe they couldn't put together a good match, and I don't believe they would have ever had... The closest thing to the Andre-Hogan hype for WrestleMania three would be Hogan-Flair. Like, especially if they haven't actually wrestled yet. Yeah. And it's like this, like, oh, what's going to happen? Because at that point in, in wrestling, in WWF, we were pretty much used to, okay, well, Hogan's going to win no matter what, and that's what it's going to be. But in the early part of his title reign, you hadn't been conditioned to that yet. So, and up, up until about Andre. And then once we got past Andre, it was like, okay, everybody else is in trouble because, like, Hogan's got to pose. I didn't know Flair mailed the belt to McMahon. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. That was his way of showing him, I, I'm actually coming this time. Because <laughs> apparently there was a couple of close near finishes. In many ways, and this is this has been sort of disputed to not be true, but like often people would talk about the gobbledygooker was this last second fill-in because Flair was supposed to be debuting <laughs> at Survivor Series. Hopefully not coming out of a giant oh, exactly. tur- turkey that, egg. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to bring Flair out of a turkey egg? How yeah. is that going to make him look good? The gobbledygooker. But yeah. that was like a fill-in. <laughs> the gobbledygooker. Rick Martell with under a minute to go. Now fighting back and look at those roundhouse lefts. He's landing on Terry Gordy. Off the ropes, up and over. Slam! 325. Gordy backing up, but this is the fury of heavyweight champion Rick Martell at French-Canadian Timber. Oh, the entire ring moved about six inches. Timber comes Gordy. He is down. Martell is hot and ready to roll. Look out, Martell's coming. Flying drop Right kick. on the chin. Right on the chin, and look at Terry Gordy. And another one. Rick Martell is camping more than half a minute or so left oh, in the match. Oh, oh. he ran out of time. He ran out of time. There will be no change in the belt, but no real decision in this match. So I think there's a lot of information out there about, you know, why Hogan left the AWA, and I know you've watched lots of different things, right? What's your general impression, or what do you think the the narrative is about what you know how Hogan ended up in the WWF and did not staying in the AWA? I believe that Vern Gagne was not willing to share the merchandising goodies with Hogan, and hard to really be on Vern's side looks like a pretty poor choice. <laughs> That's definitely a big part of it, I think, that I've heard from many, many different people, including Hogan and including the great Ganyas of the world. They, they obviously have different versions of their stories. Another part of it is apparently Vern wanted a big chunk of his Japan money because Hogan was going over to Japan and making huge money mm. on little tours. 
Right. And apparently Byrne wanted like a big piece of it, <laughs> uh, you know, and that's another like, you know, what are you doing? And he was reluctant to put the belt on someone he didn't consider a true athlete, a real wrestler. Mm. And so people will say, well, you know, had had Vern put the belt on him when he could have, that would have changed wrestling. And it's like, well, it, I'm not sure. Maybe, you know, it could have. Or maybe it just delays the, it delays Hogan going <laughs> to New York. Yeah. You got to think that McMahon would have found a way yeah. to do what he did, even if it wasn't Hogan. Either. Yeah. I mean, you know, Backlund was an incredible star in New York. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting yeah. idea. What would you know, he, and, if... and McMahon's reportedly was, you know, considering, like, he, he wasn't 100% sure he was going to be able to get Hogan. So he he was looking at different options of who was he going to do this national expansion, this push with. It's kind of interesting. There's sort of a short list of wrestlers, famous wrestlers, that people say, like, would have gotten the Hulk Hogan spot and treatment had Hulk Hogan not been available. Have you ever heard the names that have been bandied about as far as like who you th- he was possibly going to acquire and then pushes that big baby face? Hmm, let me think. Did I ever hear about somebody who was going to get the Hogan push, the Hogan spot? It's obviously not solid because I would have just said, boop, so-and-so. Yeah. If I think about it, I'd have to start thinking who was hot at the time mm-hmm. and who might have had a chance to uh, take that. So I don't think I know. All I do recall, that reminds me that I think it was Vince McMahon Sr. was told, put Steve Kern where Bob Backlund ended up being. So Steve Kern, the fabulous one, and later Skinner, could have been WWF no, World I never heard that one. Yeah, I think it was on The Rocks show. That, oh, interesting. Uh, and uh, some, you know, so he was like weighing whether to go with Backlund. Or Steve, and somebody said Steve Kern's got the ethic, and you can get behind him, and he'll be your backland. And he chose not to go that way, yeah. but that's not the Hogan slot. So no. I think that I have to respectfully say I don't know. Okay, so the three names that I think get oh, there was run, one thing run, I wanted to say before oh, I forget. I did hear Greg Gagne say that he thought like you talked about they were all waiting for you. Yeah, according to Greg Gagne, the biggest scoop of all wasn't Hogan. Right. You remember who Greg Gagne said was the big scoop, his best talent? Bobby Heenan. That's right. Yeah. And that's something Greg Gagne was like, wasn't losing Hogan that did it. Oh, yeah. It was losing Heenan. He was our greatest talent. That's right. That's Bob, Bobby Heenan, like... <laughs> Gotta love that. ...was, you know, uh, and rightfully so, Bobby Heenan, in many ways, is the greatest performer in wrestling ever because he was so... He was totally unrated as a wrestling, as a wrestling talent, like a true wrestler. Most people didn't even get to see him. He wrestled in Chicago and and these Indiana or whatever, and, and a little bit in the AWA. Mostly he was, you know, known as a manager, but he was such a great wrestler. Like, he was, it was amazing what he could do, even though he looked like, you know, because he could get the crowd to hate him, because everyone in the crowd believed they could beat him up. You know, he, he didn't look threatening at all, but he had great talent, and he was so good on the mic, and he was so great as a manager, and then he turned that into being an announcer. Unfortunately, you know, back when he was wrestling... In the 70s, he took a pretty serious neck injury that later crept in and sort of cut his managing day short. He wanted to come off the road because he couldn't, he couldn't bump anymore. And they said, well, you don't have to. And he's like, yeah, I do. You know, I can't. Well, when I was in grade six, I had the coolest teacher of all time, Mr. <laughs> B, Mike Bolianis. If you're out there, Mr. B, you're probably only about 15 years older than me. So look me up. Let's be friends. So Mr. B was this athletic charming and super cool older brother grade six teacher so one day he tells the entire class i went to the wrestling last night my ears 
<laughs> and he goes on to describe only one story. But he tells us that, and I probably had some vague idea from watching the TV show of like, oh, really? You got to see? So I guess it was Blackjack Lanza got Heenan in the ring yeah. after Heenan did his Weasley cheating, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. cost him the match. And Mr. B told us, so Blackjack takes his belt off and puts his belt around Heenan's neck. And then he goes to whip him in the ropes, but he holds onto the belt and yanks him like he was pulling his dog inside, you know, who didn't want to. Yeah. And he can, Heenan does the run and then kicks his legs out and gets just basically like lynched by the belt. And it was just like this authoritative figure, our grade six teacher. And he was loving. He was just talking about how the crowd was going so mental for watching Heenan getting like nearly strangled to death. <laughs> and like this is... I'll never forget that, uh, Mr. B describing Bobby the Brain Heenan or the Weasel getting his comeuppance at yeah. a live show. And it was like the kids, all these, you know, 11-year-olds are just like, wow, listening to the 26-year-old teacher describe Bobby Heenan. It was Bobby yeah, Heenan. Yeah, that he, yeah. he came and what did he talk about? He talked about Bobby Heenan. Neat. <laughs> That's super funny. Yeah, he didn't mention any other wrestler. Yeah, I can't. He said Bobby Heenan. He said, and then he just looked like he was dead, and we were all. Yeah. Just, I was imagining it. the way he described it. I was like, is he is he in the hospital? Is he still alive? <laughs> I mean, you know, wrapping your belt yeah, around yeah, a guy's yeah, neck, yeah. and then so yeah, Heenan he could just take those flops, and he would do that great. The Ric Flair, the you know, the Ray Stevens, the in some ways the Sergeant Slaughter kind of bump in the corners. You know, he would he would do the flips or he would do the straight over the top, you know. Or how about when somebody would stuff him in the weasel suit? Well of course. He did know, that in the AWA yeah, as well. They, they eventually yeah brought that up for the for the warrior to do with him in matches and stuff like that. But so to circle back to the close the loop on just the sort of fantasy sort of booking idea. So there was three wrestlers that Hogan pardon me, that McMahon had reportedly sort of said like, okay, if we can't get Hogan it's going to be one of these guys. So one of them was the person he already had, and that was Jimmy Snuka. So Snuka was like the top, top baby face before Hogan. Even though Backlund was the champion, Snuka had gotten himself into a position. After being a heel, he'd gotten himself into like the baby face position. The issue with Snuka was some personal issues, obviously, really dark stuff, and his age. Like he was already kind of up there for a wrestler. Like, you know, he wasn't uh, as, you know, Hogan was quite a bit young, you know, Everyone thinks Hogan's so old and everything, but, like, you know, Snooker was older than Hogan. The second person that he reportedly was looking at bringing in, Dusty Rhodes. Mm. Because he, he respected how much he could, like, sort of capture the crowd, you know, the, the audience. And, and if you can kind of imagine the WWF marketing machine behind a Dusty Rhodes in the mid-'80s, like, I know he wouldn't have been able to pull off what Hogan did, but I think he would have like been able to like really been bigger than he have, you know than he even was with the NWA and Florida and Crockett and all that stuff. So that's sort of an interesting thought. The one that kind of lines up and makes the most sense as far as like just from a pure physical perspective is Kerry Von Erich. So he was reportedly quite interested in Kerry Von Erich because the cr- the way the crowds were responding in Texas to them probably wasn't a hundred percent aware of all the. Uh, personal issues behind the, with the Von Erichs, and obviously that wouldn't have worked out had, I can only imagine Kerry crumbling even sooner had he had the kind of pressure of being with this big national, like, you know, star that the entire company's built on. Uh, who knows? Well, <laughs> he probably would have, unfortunately, had an even shorter life. So it's interesting to think that, like, had Vern been successful in keeping Hogan, is the AWA 
the last dog standing in the fight against the WWF instead of Crockett. Like, had he been able to keep, had Vern, you know, let's say had some contracts in place to keep people like the Road Warriors and, and Hulk Hogan and, you know, had he, like, sort of upped his marketing game and the, the merchandising and been able to kind of stay in there. So it's really, it's really truly interesting, sort of this idea of, like, you know, alternate realities of how, like, the different territories could have extended their lives or even potentially been true competitors to the and monster that, that WWF was. Right. And that sort of doesn't really take into account the whole NWA. Because when we enter the scene, we're thinking, according to the magazines, three big... Yes. And then one of them goes down, the AWA. The NWA never really went down, not during our prime... Era, yeah. Of course, modern wrestling fans, and you and I both know that... WWF did eventually buy WCW, yeah, which, yeah. you know, WCW and NWA, somebody would have to write a little guide as to when to use which three letters, you know, because it's a little <laughs> yeah, confusing. It's a, there's, a, there's a small overlap after Turner buys where they're still referring to the NWA title, they're still referring to different things, but yeah, WCW, and, and the confusion of it, of course, is that, like, the premier flagship TV show for Crockett and the NWA is... World Championship Wrestling. So the name of the company was the name of the TV show. So it gets really muddled if you're sort of periphery like we were watching from afar. Right. We don't know what's what. Or rather, reading from afar. Reading from afar, yeah. Bill Apter kept it pretty clear. He called yeah. Ric Flair the NWA champion. Yes. And the whole WCW stuff didn't, you know, enter to my... Yeah. Uh, didn't ever... It was... Now I'm like 17 or 18 watching WCW, and I'm not even really sure where it stopped being NWA and started being WCW, yeah. but there was a, an era where I was watching, you know, what I thought were NWA wrestlers, but yeah. it was no longer called the NWA. That's right. And then eventually the NWA remnants of those guys maybe tried TNA. This is certainly not my field of expertise. Sort of, yeah. I right. mean, that was, yeah. And that gets into the whole, there's a whole bunch of failed attempts to kind right. of like reboot studio wrestling or, you know, have these alternatives. Yeah. Once WCW goes down, like TNA, which I think is called Impact now, peek behind the curtain here, folks. Like, uh, didn't watch modern wrestling from about 2012 or 13 until basically now. I have started watching the AEW product, just sort of a, out of a, I don't know. I've sort of felt like AEW, yeah, all yeah, elite, all elite wrestling, and I, you know, watching that when that show, and really that was just because of podcast. If I wasn't listening to podcasts and knowing that show was starting up, mm -hmm. and if they weren't on a major network, and if they didn't have a couple of big names like Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone on the mic to kind of pull me back to these well, old days, and what about the ring? Yeah. Sting, you know, like yeah, Sting in the ring. Eventually, oh, get, eventually getting to bring Sting out and get a little pop for Sting even yeah, though. Yeah, well, that caught my attention. Yeah, like, yeah. Sting's, I'm not paying attention either, but if Sting is there, I'm at least I'm like... And, and, you know, initially going into it, I mean, I respected Cody Rhodes for what he did, but really what pulled me in was like, you got these two Winnipeg greats. You know, we got, we got Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega, and Jeff and I didn't really know anything about Kenny Omega for years. You know, he, he had a whole career, let's say, before we would have known him, and I know probably a lot more than Jeff does because I've watched so many shows, and Jeff's only watched a few. But it's tough. It's it's tough to be an old wrestling fan to try and watch modern wrestling. And but I also sort of felt like, well, if I want this thing to ever, if there's ever a hope that I could ever even care a fraction of what I used to, which I realize I never will, it's like you kind of have to watch this product and kind of see how it is. And and I I do feel like in the modern lens, in the restrictive sort of 
circumstances they find themselves in with the way the TV product is and the business model is that, like, from what I've seen from WWE in the last 10 years and what I see of AEW, AEW is at least things about it that are closer to the old way of wrestling than, you know, than WWE is. Like, it's just, you know, and I'm sure there's people out there listening that will kind of say it's the same thing either way. But I, I just find that the production, you know, it's hard you, know, you turn on the WWE screen and it's like the, the blitz you with the, the lights and you just can't even see anything. Everything, there's so much digital stuff happening all around the ring. It's hard to even look at. And I just can't really like get behind it at all. Well, Jeff and I actually, you know, kind of and we'll give away when we're recording this, but we actually went and saw the All Elite Wrestling Dynamite in Winnipeg, our first live wrestling show in 10 or 15 years or something. And that's we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit because the double shot dynamite and and rampage yeah the taping which is a an unfortunate structure in reality they have to do these back to back tapings but boy do you, do you do you ever kill a crowd doing that you know like poor rampage you know I, I guess it's a good thing they have the on on TV they can sweeten the crowd and and make it seem like it's super exciting but as a for a live experience you can hundred percent see the difference between the first show and the second show. Well, that's for sure. The guys we went with went home after, you know, the first television program was done yeah. recording. I was toying with the idea, you know, like, should we go to? But I did want to see Ray Phoenix. So they teased in a match that I was interested in watching. Mm-hmm. If that's his name. Yep. I agree with you. That structure is a totally different experience to my memories of any wrestling event ever. I've never been to... Uh, one night of wrestling where they're making two television programs. Right. So, yeah, pretty anticlimactic. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we were stuck in another sense. We knew we were going to get more of our hometown boys if we hung around for the That's second right. television show. And, of course, we did. And, I mean, it was worth it because, you know, we didn't want to miss out on that love yeah. of Kenny Omega and Jericho and then Don Cordes came out. Don Callis. Oops, I guess. That's okay. <laughs> the, the natural. The yes. Cyrus. Sorry, Don. The least known of these big three. That's yeah, right. Big guys. Give him some time to train and he could be number Yeah. Number and also, uh, <laughs> you know, it was funny how Jericho said like, yeah, my uncle. He, and he said, uh, I prefer the term older brother because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Don is looking bald and fat yeah, and yeah, Jericho's yeah, yeah. still in the ring. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, he's got a good sense of humor, that yes, Don yes. fellow. So we wanted to stick around to see the special. It was a historic night Yeah, to have these, you know, Winnipeggers. In Winnipeg, and yep. they're so key to the AEW. So, structure, unfortunately, for an evening's entertainment, not ideal. But the biggest problem I found <laughs> was the seating arrangement. And I guess, you know, you would put it better because you got in on early bird tickets? This is, this is ridiculous, and we, there's sort of two stories here. One is our experience, and I want to, like, at least be fair to, like, th- there was a good experience there. But there's the tickets, I was in on, you know, early bird. I I did some work and got this code, and I was able to buy tickets the day before other people were allowed to buy tickets. Yet somehow we ended up with some of the worst tickets in the whole place. And what really pissed me off was that the visual representation of the seating chart and the ring at the time that I bought the tickets was completely, not completely different, but very different from the reality of where we were. So when I bought the tickets... I first I get in I get in and I need to buy four tickets. Well, 
it prompts me two tickets front row. And part of me right now wishes that I would have jettisoned Sean's buddy, and I hadn't even asked you yet, or I barely just asked you. Like, you know, Sean and I could have been front row, you know, like, you know that would have obviously been a very different experience than what we got. So when I changed the selection to four seats, I get offered completely different tickets, and now I can't get back. You know, it's not offering me in the front row at all. Like, you know, I can't get four tickets in the front row. I can't get anywhere I'm trying to see, like, that I'm looking for. But I do notice it prompts me to buy tickets not the section that's on camera, you know, right in front of the ring, but the section right beside it and right in the corner and at the ledge. So basically that raised up view, nobody's going to be in your way. You're right there. So it's like a, you're slightly looking to your left, but not, you know, those would have been great tickets. We get to the, you know, the day I'm transferring the tickets, I see a completely different map that shows that we're not one section over. We are two sections over which now we are doing essentially a 90-degree turn left with our head for the entire night to look at the ring. You're in this, like, awkward, like, you know, neck-crunching position, which by the end of the night you're going to have, like, you know, stiff neck syndrome. And we had a great view of the stage when they come out from their entrance, but unlike most shows, there wasn't any action up there. So many Dynamites or Rampages have some big fight up on the ramp, you know, right on the stage there. But not this night. We didn't get any of that. So, like, and, you know, you end up spending part of the night looking at the monitor up on the screen. You kind of feel like, well, I could be doing this at home. <laughs> yeah. And what are we called now? The the Good Life Center? The Canada... Canada Life Center, yeah. Canada Life Center. Okay. Identity crisis for every major sporting facility in the world. Can't keep a name more than three years. Yeah, exactly. Phooey. Anyway, it seemed to me that not only were our seats at a bad angle to the ring, but there wasn't even enough room for us to sit Ugh. in our seats. Yeah. I mean, and okay, so we're no Greg Ganyas, but we're no King Kong Bundys either. That's right. You know, I mean, we, <laughs> and it seemed to me that we had to, you know, the way like uh, blinds are. Blinds yeah. are all kind of at a, they're all at an angle, but they're lined up. You know? That's right. <laughs> so I had to have my left shoulder back, right shoulder forward, and the person beside me had to have their right shoulder forward, left shoulder back, because if they had their right shoulder back and my left shoulder was back, you know, now just, we're yeah, now you're this, in the same space. <laughs> you were in a, on a third date. <laughs> you know, like, and uh, I happened to be sitting beside someone who was a little bit wide. Yeah. And uh, so I had to, the whole night, I had to, yeah. I couldn't ever really sit back or or I could sit back fully if the person on my left and yeah. on my right were both leaning forward and so you had to choose you were on my right and the ring was, ring was on my left so your view depended entirely on how I was sitting yeah I had to look over your shoulder one way or the other and we were actually low enough and even the other aspect of it is like I said we were they showed as if we were a row and then there was a drop off that wasn't the case we were like essentially where the hockey boards would be so we were only slightly raised up from the people on the floor. And so once they stood up, well, now we got to stand up. And if we stand up, now the people behind us got to stand up, you know. And, and I'm, But we're still dealing with this problem of looking to our left through people. Like there's, And we're looking at an angle where the corner of the ring, the post, is another yeah. obstruction for our, our, our so sight lines. That didn't work out too so, well. So, yeah, I, for the money we spent on the tickets, I was really quite pissed. And I had an experience years ago where Winnipeg... Winnipeg's NHL hockey team hosted an outdoor game. And as a season ticket holder, I had preferential treatment, supposedly, to buy tickets. And this game was happening at our football stadium. So, like, a 30,000-seat stadium instead of the 15,000-seat hockey arena. 
And so I got in the day of and bought the tickets, and they were decent tickets. And another person in our ticket group didn't, because we could only have one code, let's say, to buy these, like, preferential seats. So a couple of days later in the week, this other person just went and bought their own tickets, and they got better tickets than I did. So I think that the scam, when you see these pre-sale codes, is I, I think they block off certain areas, and they'll, like... They make some areas available to buy some good seats, but they also make sure, I think they, like, they got the most keen people, so, like, they, let's sell the dog shit, let's sell the, let's fill the arena, you know, let's sell the hard-to-sell parts, you know, it would seem. I'm going to be, you know, really careful again, ever, if I'm ever, not that I buy a lot of event tickets, but, you know, I'll be very careful about doing a pre-sale again, because I really felt ripped off. There was people who paid a lot less money than us who had way better seats than we did. <laughs> and it was like, I bought my seats in December. There's people that probably bought their seats the week of the show and had better seats than us. Yikes. So it's not a, if you're listening, Canada Life Center, AEW, like, you know, like, maybe go and look at what these sight lines actually are. And, and what's, a, what's a prime ticket for maybe a hockey game isn't necessarily good for wrestling. Yeah, that was on the downside. But the good thing of it, there was some good atmosphere, I think. I did enjoy it a lot more than our last experience of going to a WF show. We both agree <laughs> we went to like a WWE show and like I want to say somewhere between 2009 and 12, totally forgettable. I don't remember anything about it other than the fact that like Jericho was there and he didn't even wrestle. Huh. And that was like so that was really a piss off. It, you know, it was CM Punk in the main event. I think so. I'm throwing up my hands. I don't remember a single second yeah. of it. I just, well, I know Cena was there because yeah. that was key to our experience. We were near some kids who were cheering John Cena, and I wanted to boo him, but yeah. I didn't want to scare these kids. We could see across the direct. We had pretty good seats too, but directly across the arena, there was like there was like the the, the party crowd, the university section, the rowdy crowd, and we were in like the Chuck E. Cheese crowd. So yeah. we kind of felt like after the first five ten minutes, like. Yeah, this isn't probably the place for us to be the, you know, like, loud and boisterous and heels and yeah. and rowdy. And, and so we kind of just ended up having this, like, really, like, sort of tame, lame experience because we were just surrounded by, like, all these, like, you know, under 10s or whatever, or yeah. under 12s. and CM Punk, you know, he's I'm okay with him, but I didn't have my... Yeah, I'm not a part of the CM Punk Booster Club. He's yeah. fine, yeah. but he just didn't inspire me to cheer, not the way that, you know, I cheered... When the Road Warriors fought the Fabulous Ones, or yeah. you know, or when I uh, saw Jake versus Hogan, there weren't many people cheering Jake, but I was cheering Jake, and yeah. I was having a great time because I yeah. was like, you know, screaming and yeah, <laughs> just, you know. I think they put on a pretty good show. The crowd, especially for the first show for for uh, Dynamite, was pretty into it. When you know Omega and Jericho came out, they were crazy loud. Yeah. Uh, I think that went over really well. I think that they. Put on some good moves. We couldn't always see those moves, but it was like, you know, my memory of like late 80s, like WWF shows is that they, those house shows, they, it's a lot of stalling. (laughs) You know, the wrestlers didn't do a lot of moves. I remember seeing a match with Virgil and he like stood out by far that night because he did like 15 different moves in his match. Whereas a lot of the other guys only did about three, you know, like it was mostly just like stalling, rest holds, (laughs) a couple Irish whips, you know, like they really kind of, you know, don't do a lot. And like Virgil was like tried his butt off and everyone makes fun of Virgil and I, and I didn't like Virgil as a competitor. I wasn't like a cheering for Virgil, but I certainly on that night could notice like this guy's working about a hundred times harder than everybody else here. Well, it was, uh, you know, good to go and have a look and see what it's all about. And, yeah. um, I never found myself cheering the, you know, the way I did, uh, in my AWA childhood. Of course, yeah. Um, but I applauded 
the effort and yep. I cheered where I felt compelled and there are definitely, you know, some characters that I think are fun and cool in yeah. AEW. The uh but for me the most fun that I had without I mean like I don't think we'll bother to list every wrestler no. and all the stuff. No. I did feel that when I saw Jeff Jarrett wrestle Orange Cassidy, that summed up to me era wrestling. Orange Cassidy's pretty cool, but he's you know, he looks like a white Bruce Lee. He's ripped, <laughs> ripped, shredded, you know, yeah. athletic guy. But he could be a jogger, you know. Yeah, 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 that's he, right. He yeah. could be a gold medal jogger. Now, Jeff Jarrett, even though he's like 54, yeah. you know, the guy's like the triangle. He's like half wide as one part tall. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's just like he comes out and like there's a professional wrestler. Yeah. Like this guy is, you know, a, a, just yeah, he's a, a thick hulking. And he's big. Th- and yeah. He looks like he could beat up most of the people that he come does. around him. Yeah. So, um,. That was just, I just remember, like, looking at that match and thinking, now, this guy looks like a professional wrestler, and the other guy doesn't. Now, this does betray my bias. Yeah. Uh, but still, I got to say that probably Orange Cassidy would be the guy that I got the most fun out of as yeah. far as these new school. But mostly he's got an entertaining shtick. That's right. And yeah. some silliness and playfulness to Definitely. his character. He wrestles with his hands in his pockets. So I'm like, oh, that's impressive. Acrobatics and athletics. Yes. and Jumping creative. off the top rope with your hands in your pockets. Or yeah. Something or, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I... And, also, he comes out to some classic rock. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you, I start to get that little bit of like, oh, this is, you know, like some of those excitement, you know, just like the, the posing yeah. and the music, the, the electric yeah. guitar. You know, and I think music's such a huge thing with wrestling. And I, yeah. you know, I probably could talk about it every episode we ever do. But like, you know, it just there's so many things that are tied to wrestling and memories of, sh- of cards, shows, moments. And they're tied to a song. Yeah. And until AEW started putting out a lot of, like, doing a lot of this, like, putting out money to allow these guys to have commercial songs again. Yeah. All of a sudden, like, that's giving me those vibes again. Yes. Yeah, like, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Elite, which is Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. And I, I was always a, not a fan of the Young Bucks. I appreciate their ability to flip around, but I don't really like their style of wrestling. And I, I would prefer to watch them lose, usually. They were kind of like <laughs> the rockers of the day. Like, I can appreciate that they were very talented, but I was always cheering for the other team. So, but when they came back after a time away as a threesome, you know, as a trio, trios, as they call it, you know, and they came out to like carry on wayward son or whatever the proper name of that Kansas song is. Well, I just like, I lost, you know, I was, it was so exciting to me to watch them come out to that music. I had no idea they were going to come out to that music. It was on a pay-per-view. They did an extra long intro. They let them cut, they, they, they let them take forever. Like they really got far enough into the song that they actually hit the chorus again, you know, like <laughs> it wasn't just the opening. It was like, and the timing of it, it just, and you could just feel that energy. And then in future weeks on TV, they would come out, but the song gets cut off before you can get to the right spot. And I just, you know, it's funny. And it's one of the biggest losses we have. Never mind the change of wrestling, but just the loss of the music. Yeah, that's, so that like, was fun. I did. I, I, I agree with you 100%. And the fact that, like like you say, with um, the elite, this classic rock yeah. for us old guys. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of rap music that I yeah. like, a lot of hip-hop music that I like. But there's so much rap and hip-hop music that I don't know and I'm not familiar with. It probably makes me feel like an old guy when, yeah. you know, a current star comes out with the latest hit. I'm like, who's the latest hit? Yeah, I, yeah, don't, I don't know. I, exactly. I really don't know. Um, but I really did get some of the fun, like you say, music uh, is a massive part of, like, Savage's opening, you know, yeah. uh, coming well, out if, to... If you watch an old card... But the NWA were the ones who were the yeah. masters of music. That's right. Even though rock yeah. and wrestling was a WWF thing, forget it. 
I would think you would argue the Midnight Express, oh, yeah. Rock and Roll Express, yeah. the music, like, it, it was audio triggering, you know, the people went crazy for their ears, and of course, you know, we, which we've already covered, Iron Man, Black Sabbath, yes. I don't really know who did it first, but actually that's a, oh boy, we, it's open more cans of worms than we close around A lot here. of different wrestlers try to claim to be the first to come out to music, like Michael Hayes will say it was them. People, different people, different people. Gorgeous George came out to music, so hold on a second. You know, like how are I we think, gonna? I think Gorgeous George might have came out to Savage's theme. Yes, he did. There you yeah. go. Yeah. So well, you that's, know, that's a good point. We should say Freebird. Here's a team who named themselves after, after a song. song. <laughs> right. And I'm gonna tell you, like, I love that song to this day because of a connection to one match that I saw it on, and like it, it hits me to this day, like. It's it's so funny because I don't think I would have been a fan of that music otherwise. I wouldn't I would know the song, but would it would it give me a special feeling when I hear it every single time I hear it? No. And it's the connection, the audio connection to the visual representation of wrestling, those two things coming together, and that's exactly one song. The, the, you know, they ended up coming out with their own music basically the Freebirds. So for, the the Freebird song stopped getting used. Yeah. But I was always like and there was something about bad, you know, Bad, the Bad Street Atlanta USA thing. Like, it was pretty good. It was. Like, yeah. I'm fine with it. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. It was pretty good. <laughs> but I always said, what would have been perfect is, like, come out to Bad Street, but then if you win, play Freebird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Freebird had a special place. But then, of course, Eye of the Tiger was... Oh, yeah. Yes. So... Oh. I mean, I guess that when they talk about rock and wrestling, they most people are talking about Hulk Hogan. Yes. And uh, the fact that Eye of the Tiger with his theme, theme song, but also Cyndi Lauper getting involved. Yes. But she actually managed, the, at first, Cyndi Lauper managed the Freebirds in the WWF for that heartbeat of their wow, stay. Wow, I, I actually didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. There's a clip. Uh, face Freebirds coming to the ring <laughs> with um, Cyndi Lauper. And it didn't last. Yeah. Andre didn't like the Freebirds, so they yeah. didn't stick around very long. I've seen that a couple times. He didn't <laughs> yeah. like many people, did he? Did, yeah, he didn't like a lot of people. Yeah, you're right. Mm. But that's really interesting. Yeah, no. The, and, you know, the WF came up with all these unique themes in the 80s. We have all these, like, you know, right. original tracks. But even those ones, are start, they've had a falling out with whoever created those. So, like, they go back <laughs> in the WD Network and they've sponged out all this music oh, and replaced it with like terrible. I of the Tigers got Real American instead. Right. Well, but guess what? Now you, now the crowd noise is muted. Like yeah. if you want to see something, go check out on the WWE Network or Peacock or wherever you're watching this and you have access to it. Go bring up AWA Super Sunday 1983, which is basically the most you know famous AWA card for most people. That's the one that probably gets watched the most, talked about the most. The big Hogan Bockwinkle. They sold out the you know, twenty five thousand people in the arena, and then they sold out another you know four, five, six thousand people in a separate building on a you know on a, a simulcast. And they've but watched the entrance of that show and the music that they plugged in. I don't even know what it is. Now go on the internet and go find the original clip with him coming out to Eye of the Tiger completely different experience yeah it is so exciting watching him come out to eye of the tiger Mm -hmm. and the sound of that crowd and then go watch the muted wwe like edited version which just doesn't in any way give you the feeling that like this is this big deal that it is yeah it's also altering history you know like not what what happened so that stinks when they replace the music so getting back to aew thumbs up for their classic rock yep and it was a special night because of Chris Jericho. and Yeah, the timing was off. I knew that they weren't going to, like, back when they announced this card, of course, my hope was that either Jericho or Omega would 
win the world title in Winnipeg. You know, that's what I want, right? Like, who wouldn't want that? Well, they had a chance to, like... And, just... they, and they never deliver. Like, mm. nine, 99 times out of 100, wrestling promotions, all of the wrestling promotions, they, some reason, they, they think it's, like, they have to do the opposite. Oh, everyone wants the hometown hero to win? Let's make them lose. Let's not let them win. Let's not let them have that moment. And I gotta tell you, like, there's not too many people in AEW that are at the, the level that Jericho and Omega are at, and to have two in the same city. You know, like, that was the thing. Like, you know, they've had lots... I've watched lots of their shows where, like, they're in the hometown of this person or that person. They're in Chicago when CM Punk was with them. That was, you know, a very special show for them. But to have two guys in Winnipeg? So I kept thinking, like, well, maybe it's going to be them against each other. Or maybe it's going to be one of them getting a title shot. And then it turned into, like, oh, they're both on six-man tag matches, and it's a three-way six-man tag, so now, like, the two guys we want to see, or there's nine of there's nine people in this match? Well, there was that incredible... Oh! Pop. It was very exciting, yeah. wasn't it? But to think that we had nine performers where we wanted to see yeah. these two... So, what Jeff's alluding to is, you know, they the match starts, and there's a whole bunch of stuff happens, as, as always in modern wrestling, with people flying all over the place, and eventually, the smoke clears, and the two left standing at this point, and this is early in the match... Or Jericho and Omega. And that crowd, it's the highest pop of the entire night. Like, people go crazy for this moment. Like, they're having this showdown, and they're yapping at each other, and they're both to start going at it. And then the the, wrestler, the villain wrestlers come running in and, like, kind of attack them both at the same time and yeah. break up that moment. And you never quite get back to that fever pitch again. It never quite, you know, reaches that level again. But that was the moment they could have given us. And, uh, you know, and <laughs> they couldn't even give us that. <laughs> yeah, they had to do the, like, build a little more anticipation I think they did finally lay into each other. Oh later. yeah, they definitely, definitely. And the other thing too is that they they fought each other, but then they also started like teaming together. Like yeah. there was a there was a great moment where there's a giant guy named Brody King who's really oversized, yeah. and he's up on the top rope, sitting on the top rope, and I think it's Jericho or Omega, whichever one is up, trying to give him a superplex, and he can't quite do it. Yeah. And then he looks over and he waves the you know the other per- whichever the other guy is, and so now you got Jericho and Omega double superplex on this yeah, guy. That was great. So that was that was pretty funny. Yeah, I I really. You Well, there's one thing we didn't mention yet about our experience, if we have time to do it. And that is that I went dressed up as the Macho (laughs) Man. Yes. And, man, I had a fucking blast. Yep. My costume is, well, I mean, it's kind of like I'm almost... Uh, well, no, no, it's it's a very, it's 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 an easy costume, and, and it's something I see at AEW, like, it's very common when you're watching an AEW show on the hard camera side to see somebody wearing, you know, a classic Macho Man shirt. Not necessarily doing the gimmick or dressed up, but just you you see those sunglasses or you see the image of Macho Man, it's, it kind of always sticks out, usually a purple shirt. Right. And so, yeah, Jeff had a very simple costume, but very recognizable, so he's got the classic his... classic shirt. Classic purple shirt, Macho Man shirt. Jeff's wearing a bandana. I think the key piece to the resistance is uh, he has these, uh, you know, classic Macho Man sunglasses, which really, you know, bring it together. And then he, with the, the facial hair and the way you kind of strung your hair out coming out of the bandana, you know, it gives a good look. And as people on the show have heard, Jeff does a pretty damn good impression of Macho Man. So, and people are, you know, people were into it, you know, like as we were walking through the arena, People were like, you know, shouting at him, saying things, you know, a couple of people asked to take pictures, you know, because it's just, it's just people are having fun and it's just, it's a great thing. And I don't know if there's anybody else in wrestling that is, it's sort of as recognizable as, as, you know, it's, you're like, yeah, that's Macho Man. Think of all these modern wrestlers who, what costume could you put together that could make any random person kind of like look like somebody, right? Well, I have the answer. Shockmaster. <laughs> 
right. And he was there. Yeah. He, we <laughs> had a shock master. Apparently he got on camera. Like, we missed it yeah. from where we were, but he got... Uh... Well, he got, like, I was a little jealous. Yeah. Because Shockmaster was on the aisle. Yes. Uh, like, to the ring. So he, yeah, you know, yeah. the other... He could have been high-fiving wrestlers, That's right? right, yeah. Now, this Shockmaster was about... Five eight, not yeah, six. Yeah, that's right. Five, you know what I mean. So he was like not an, but he had other than that, he had tugboat's oh. body. He yeah, was a pudgy. He, yeah, exactly. Rolling. He had the right frame, and, yeah, he, the right. and he didn't have a shirt on. He had like the cape. He had the he had the helmet. He had it all. Like the it was, glittery, it was, yeah, it was a good. So costume. he looked great. Yeah. And yeah, when they were talking to the crowd and like saying sort of like, "Hey, we know you'd like to go home, but uh, we got another TV show to record that's here, so right. please don't leave." And uh, you know, hey, we got a shock. Oh, we got the Shockmaster right here. <laughs> and then he goes, "Let's hear it for the Shockmaster." Yeah, and then all. All 7,000 people are cheering for the shock master. Yeah, that's right. And I was so jealous because, you yeah, know. Yeah, And then one of, somebody in our section said, Hey, you missed your chance, macho man. Because, like, yeah, that's right. you know, I was, there was a, a fan <laughs> costume was getting props from, you know. Yes. The whole, so the, but I did get my moment of recognition when yep. the their Michael Buffer guy. That's right. Uh, came out and he didn't speak to me, but he recognized me from, like, whatever, 40, 50 feet. Yeah, he looked off the stage at you and he pointed at you. Yeah, yeah. well, I had my hand up and I was yeah, doing, yeah. like, the little finger twirl, oh, right, the right. classic, you know, when he's up on the top rope, he'll yeah. either do both, he'll point up with both fingers, or sometimes he just has one finger up and he does just a little, like, yeah, a little spin. You know, spin with that one finger. So I did that. I had my one hand up and I spun the one finger, and he put his hand up and spun the one <laughs> finger in yeah, acknowledgement. That's right. He didn't say anything, yeah. but that was my moment. Then, and my heart was pounding because when Tony Khan came out to talk to us, yeah. I had mo- my moment of just like thinking, should I fucking interrupt him and get him to look over and see what what he does? And <laughs> I had, you know, humility took over instead of that. But I think if I had just shouted like, yeah, because he was pretty close, on yeah, the he was close, and he would have heard me, and he yeah. would have looked over, and it might have just been a double take. Yeah, that's right. Because you know when you're not next close to a person you don't know how big they are I'm about like I'm a scale down macho man obviously because yes. I'm not a professional athlete but these days I'm not rocking a huge beer gut either you know so yeah, yeah. it would have been a double take and like you say everybody else you know like I'm a 50 year old dad bod kind of guy but like yeah. I, I had enough of the shape yeah. you know to for people to like uh, you yeah, know big enough shoulders big enough that's yeah. right Not I'm not a 140 pounder but I'm not <laughs> so anyway it was a thrill I had so much fun dressed as Macho Man yeah. like you say people were I did get to take some photos with yeah, people yeah everyone was really excited about it and, and, yeah. and I was the, the one thing about it was that I didn't bust out the voice very much. You yeah. Because that's the, for me, when I bust out the voice, then people are really yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> When we were going in the lineup and the ticket, you were giving those guys behind us a little bit of the yeah. taste, yeah. Well, I almost thought they were trying to bully me, those guys. Well, uh, yeah, the one guy was a little bit boyish. I think they were drunk, so they were yeah. just like loud. But then one guy, a couple of the guys were like, oh, yeah, don't worry. You know, they were quick to... Uh, you know, alleviate the situation as far as yeah. like he's just he's kidding around. Like you're being, ooh, you know, you're doing your Macho Man. Yeah. So he he was kind of almost doing a wrestling promo back at you in a way is what they were yeah. indicating to us. I think. Right, yeah. it all worked out yeah. for the best. Yeah, but that's you know when you go in public and you dress up and there's no filter and you know there was four of them and two of us. <laughs> exactly. I was like, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think each one of them was bigger. Yeah, than exactly. Me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was four guys bigger than you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I was like, you know, okay, I can act tough, but uh, yeah, I really yeah. don't want to. I don't want to trouble yeah so uh, <laughs> but funny. i did have a great time and and yeah i have a pair of vintage sunglasses that probably cost 200 bucks now if you look at them online i think yeah. they're swatch brand name a lot of other wrestlers i think thought there was a cool look so there's a picture of hogan and beefcake both wearing the macho man shades like that specific yeah, yeah. brand um but being a guy in theater having not you followed the dream of professional wrestling 
it was a great thrill to get those reactions from those people. One guy hugged me, and yep. if we do it again, we gotta, you know, we gotta take pictures. We dropped the ball because we didn't snap one picture of me. That's right. The good news is that it was a pretty. Oh yeah, I also had the sports tape around my hand. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, at yeah, least yeah, yeah. one person said it's the sports tape, man. That's 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 yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would have been nice for me to have a strap, some right. uh, a championship belt would have been good, but. Yeah. Considering it's mostly built around uh, the vintage sunglasses, and then anybody can buy a classic Macho Man T-shirt. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, I happened to, you know, had the other factors came together: the facial hair, the, I did my my own hair, and the bandana that I chose. It was so much fun to go and get to be the Macho Man the other <laughs> night that I I got to find more ways to do that where I can use my voice and get that excitement. Even the lady selling me concessions. That's right. Yeah, she, she was, was like, oh, it. my dad and I used to watch the Macho Man. Oh, and she, yeah, yeah. You know, she, I said to her, like, I think I said, uh, well, you're the most beautiful lady in the place. You could be my Elizabeth. I don't even know. But uh, she just like the smile on her face made me look feel like a made me feel like a million bucks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She was a gorgeous sort of 40 year old looking lady. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, when I bought my beer, it was just a lovely little exchange and she called someone like, hey, hey, some other guys. <laughs> to the fry guy, she said, yeah. hey, look, look, Randy Savage. And all he said was, oh, come here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come here. That was good. Yeah, if we'd been a section over, I think we would have been quite the night, you know. Yeah, like, and, and so I, next time we got to spend less. Well, you got to spend yeah, less. That's right. I haven't paid him back yet for these tickets, <laughs> and no pre-sales. So that we could, if we could be ringside. Oh my god! I mean, you know. like I said, I could have got two tickets ringside. That would have been oh. that would have been quite the thing. But yeah. uh, but then was, you wouldn't have been there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I wouldn't have been there. That's funny. But a historic night with those big names, Kenny Omega. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm. I don't know. Like I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure. I would rush to go again the next time they come. But yeah, but I, I also like know that Jericho's windows, you know, is closing. Yeah. sooner than later. And if he's on the card, that might be the last chance to see him. Who knows how many right. more years he's going to wrestle? So, but you know, if he had a world title shot, exactly. And AW, listen up. That's <laughs> like right. when when you do a big show and go look at the ticket sales. We talked about AWA selling more tickets in Winnipeg. Da 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 da. AEW sold more tickets in Winnipeg than they do for most of their shows. I know that they're they're not doing the greatest with their houses or cro- you know around. They, they're great at making these arenas look full on TV. They're really good at it. They they know how to film it to make it look good. But they actually sold you know they sold out what they blocked out, which was I think eighty five hundred or something. Which a lot of their shows are only getting like two three thousand people. So right. you know that was a big crowd for them. Yeah. And they said like you know they definitely said they want to come back. And a lot of people said like that would be a good venue for a pay per view. The timing of the titles didn't work out when they changed the title to MJF. A little while ago, which is the big heel of the of the promotion, they don't they don't just whip the belts around. They don't change the belts every two weeks. So I knew when that happened that I was like, oh, well, now they can't do a title change in Winnipeg for the belt because right. they just did it. Well, that's my other complaint: is far too many belts. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, uh, I'm glad we went. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Hope Sean can forgive me for those terrible seats. <laughs> <laughs> Action 
Okay, so we got so carried away with all that great content to cover and all those memories um, plus information that we're going to actually let Phil take us home as we invite you to join us for a part three of our AWA origin story. So uh, we have some exciting actual wrestling matches to talk about. And uh, you're already here at Patreon, so thank you very much. (laughs) That's right. Enjoy some more. Woohoo! So